Oh, that is a snarky comment about the show that I'm watching. This is Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it cannot be obliterated by my co-host and your friend, John Syracusa. I'm Dan Benjamin. Today is Friday, October 5th, 2012. This is episode number 88 of our beloved Hypercritical. We have three sponsors that we would like to thank and tell you more about as the show continues. Shopify.com, Shutterstock.com, and of course, Squarespace.com. I'd also like to thank our friends over at Cashfly, also.com, uh, for sponsoring the bandwidth for this entire month of October, the best month of the year. They're the fastest, most reliable CDN in the business. And if you're listening to me right now, it means you are using Cashfly because that's who delivers all of our content. Check them out at cashfly.com and let them know you heard about them from us. Good morning, John Syracuse. So you'd mentioned right before we started that you have some kind of a uh, cold going. I do. I'm under the weather today, but I will soldier on. You sound Great. like uh, a little, you know, you sound like yourself, but just maybe more gravelly. Yeah. A little extra foghorn. <laughs> right. In the mix. That's exactly what I was. <laughs> All right. We're on, we're on a schedule today. Let's so do it. Let's hit it. We got we to gotta get through Different here. time today. No, nobody. And people who are downloading the show, they don't, they don't know. They don't care. But uh, we're starting early today because we got to end early. Uh, right. I'm probably going to truncate some of the follow-up just so we can get to the main topics. Okay. So the first bit of follow-up uh, is a year-long follow-up. This is, as most people know by now, the anniversary of Steve Jobs' death mm-hmm. last year. Uh, the only note I wanted to make here is that we talked about this on episode 37 of Hypercritical entitled A Story of Triumph. Uh, it's 5by5.tv slash hypercritical slash 37. The link is also in the show notes. So if you would like to hear some discussion of that topic, I recommend you download that show. Uh, and I'm not going to talk about it again, but it's sad. And Apple, Apple.com has a little tribute today. I didn't put it in the show notes because, you know, it will expire as soon as they pull down that tribute. But if you're listening on Friday and I assume maybe Saturday or Sunday, take a look at Apple.com. They've got a neat little tribute video up there. All right, next item. In the last show, we talked about the iPhone 5. We had some follow-up about the internals of the iPhone 5, and one of them was about the thing that holds the lightning connector inside. And I had mentioned that uh, on, on two shows ago that I thought the little dents in the side of the lightning connector were perhaps gripped by spring-loaded ball bearings. The, the balls would like push into those little dents and hold the thing in, and that would be really neat. But right. in the iFixit teardown, it showed that it was just like a little metal clip, which is kind of less exciting and a little bit more lame. Uh, and I was corrected by a non-mouse, who I guess is anonymous, but also a mouse, telling <laughs> me that those little balls, those theoretical balls that I was imagining that would be on springs and they would push into those little dents, those are just called metal balls. An actual ball bearing is the balls in, with the two metal rings that are called races, I think. Uh, so... Uh, I, Everyone, I mean, I, I think I knew this in the back of my mind, but I think this is a total legit correction. This is something we should all strive to be correct about. Ball bearings are not the little metal balls. They're just called metal balls. I guess they don't have a special name. It's only a ball bearing if it has those metal balls arranged in a particular way with metal rings around them sliding around. So, really? Yes. I believe I knew that back from my remote control car days because they use ball bearings, actual ball bearings, not just little metal balls. So 
Thank you, Anon Mouse, for that correction. Also on the iPhone 5 topic last week, we were pondering the new iPhone 5 wall wart charger thing. And uh, since you actually have an iPhone 5, you said, well, that's not what my iPhone 5 came with. Yours came with the much smaller, like a vertical thing with the USB plug on the back. And many uh, listeners sent us email to solve this mystery. Uh, we should have thought of this ourselves. And of course, we didn't because we're so US-centric. Apparently, in other countries that have 240 volt power, yeah, uh, they get the big ones. Yeah, they get the big fat ones. And we get the the rinky dink ones. Now, do the do the big fat ones charge faster? Have you heard I this? I don't know. Like I know, like you said, like you said on the show, like the iPad comes with the fat one. I've got an iPad three. It came with that little fat one, and I do know that the iPad three charges faster from that little fat thing than it does if you plug it into a computer. But Way I faster. Assume, I assume it's the the same charging speed. If, uh, you know, if you plug it into the wall, regardless of what size the adapter is. Uh, but I don't know. Oh, so there you have it. U.S. and the rest of the world. And did we did we already things. clear up what was inside the little prongs that were inside of the little rinky dink one? Uh, yeah, well, you sent you sent me a picture of yours. And you said, here's my small one came with the iPhone 5 and the, and the place where the USB plug goes in is still surrounded by metal. It's right. not surrounded by plastic, but just right. with metal contacts. Right. Yeah, and I, I mean that makes sense because they want them to be small, they want them to be light, and yeah, maybe they'll revise that smaller one. And I actually, I actually think that the smaller one, assuming that it charges at the same rate, I think the smaller one is far superior to the the big fat one. And I wish that the iPad three would charge with the small one. Oh yeah, Apple is always making these wall warts smaller and smaller. Do you remember the? I think the biggest one they ever made in in this shape, like the little rounded corner rectangle, was the one for like maybe it was the original MacBook Pro Intel. It was just gigantic. It was like eighty five watt or something. Uh, it was huge. And now you know that for the iPhone, they've gotten them down to being barely bigger than just a plug would be. You know, barely bigger than just a two prong plug with a little thing for you to grab. So Apple's making good progress in that area. And all other things being equal, yeah, you'd want the smaller one, right? Why not? Yeah. I feel bad for our, our friends overseas. They, yeah, they suffer many, many indignities. Did you know some of them don't even speak English? That's what I heard. <laughs> how do they use the, the iPhone know, if they I, don't I speak know, English? I, I mean, who's going to talk they, to them? I don't know how they talk to each other. Yeah, or, oh, they talk to each other. Yeah. Oh, that's cute. All right. Uh, the next bit is about uh, what you get when you go into an Apple store and they replace something for you. Uh, so we talked about this two shows <laughs> right. ago and then a couple of anonymous current and former Apple geniuses wrote in to clarify and I read some of the clarifications and was a little bit confused by how they seemed to contradict our first uh, theories. Yeah. And so this week, tons and tons of people, former Apple geniuses, current Apple geniuses, Apple authorized dealers, uh, current and former, just tremendous amount of feedback i kept looking for the one golden piece of feedback that would give me like a bulleted list of exactly what goes on and i try to try to kind of merge them all together but anyway here's here's what i've got this is not attributed to any person i think almost everybody who wrote in wanted to be anonymous anyway so this is a melange of, of feedback and <laughs> it's my attempt to put this thing to bed maybe it's a foolish attempt but here we go all right <clears throat> i'm this i'm just going to read these things off here Apple will attempt to perform hardware repairs on Macs and replace them with new product if unable to. Right. Apple will rarely attempt to perform hardware repairs on mobile devices and accessories and will replace them with refurbished products when unable to, when unable to repair them. Um, defective mobile devices are sent back to a central repair facility where the devices are refurbished and sent 
back to Apple stores to be used as replacement devices. So you got that? Like if you come in with a, with a mobile device and there's something wrong with it and it can't be repaired in the store, it's sent to be refurbished someplace else. And then those refurbished ones are sent back to the Apple stores to be used as the replacement devices. Defective Macs that can't be repaired are returned uh, are returned by a customer and also sent back to the Central Depot. These Macs are refurbished but not sent back to the Apple stores. Right, so if you have a Mac, they can't fix it as whatever. They send it off to be refurbished, but the, 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 that, that depot doesn't send them back to Apple stores. You cannot purchase used or refurbished products at Apple retail stores. So, you know, when we always talk about refurbished MacBook Pros and stuff like that, right. you can't buy them at retail stores. They have to be online. Refurbished Macs, iPads, and iPods are only sold on Apple's online store. Apple never, never sells refurbished iPhones anywhere. All right. Any, that's anywhere. It. And that's, that's yes. That's according to this Melange feedback here. All right. So hmm. when they say when for iPods, iPads and iPhones and mobile devices, any whole unit swap, uh, the part may be new or remanufactured. And for Apple, remanufactured means that every external part that can be seen or felt by the customer is actually brand new, as is the battery. Internal parts like speakers, memory boards, stuff like that uh, may be refurbished and reused from a prior device. So that's what when you go in and they give you a replacement iPhone, what you're getting is something that's been remanufactured or maybe new. Uh, but everything that you touch it is like new, brand new, never been touched by another person. It's just that the inside parts may be refurbished, except for the battery, which is always new, which makes sense because batteries wear out. You can't really re- refurbish those. All right. Uh, and uh, another note here, any unit that the Apple Store receives that has any liquid contact of any sort is completely recycled. No parts from it are ever refurbished. So as soon as liquid enters the pictures, those parts will never go into another iPhone. So you're not going to get a remanufactured one like that. Uh, there are circumstances where you would replace your mobile device and not end up with a remanufactured one. For example, if Apple hasn't started remanufacturing. So if you go in with an iPhone and you like get a defective one or you drop it or whatever, and you iPhone 5, I mean, and you go back in, you're going to get a brand new one because they haven't probably remanufactured any iPhone 5s left. So you get, you know, just, you know, completely new because they don't have any remanufactured ones. Uh, if the customer is offered a crew, C-R-U, this stands for Customer Replacement Unit. This is where the genius has decided that you've had far too many repairs on your machine. And in order to restore your faith in Apple, he's decided to give you an entirely new unit from the shelf and replace it. This can happen at any time in your warranty. So this is, you know, just at the discretion of the... Apple Genius, if it looks like you're just going around in circles, stuff like that, they can just give you a new one. Uh, Customers never like hearing that their phone has been remanufactured. It's a difficult conversation if they ask. I mean, even if you can explain to them, I imagine like, okay, well, you know, the battery's brand new, the outsides are brand new, everything's remanufactured, and we tested it and it's all fine. They may be cranky about it, right? Uh, We would, this is the, the Apple Store person, we would often say that all the service parts were remanufactured when in fact, if a member of the Genius team wanted their phone to be replaced, we would always search through the piles to see if we could find one that had a serial number that we knew to be a new phone. So I guess if you're in the know, if you're one of the geniuses, when you want to get your thing replaced, you can sort through which ones have remanufactured insides and which ones aren't. Now, I don't know if that's a rational thing to do and if, if you have any better luck with the one with remanufactured insides versus new, but apparently there is a way for the people on the inside to know. So let me, let me ask you this. Let's say you, let's say you, you bring an iPhone in as a problem. Let's say you bought it the day before and it's uh, it's a lemon. It's got major problems. You roll in, you say, look, this the whole thing doesn't work. And the genius spends a few minutes with it and says, you know what? You're right. And since you just bought it, we're going to swap you out. This happens all the time. Yep. You're saying just to, for total clarity here, you're saying that, that we might get a brand new phone or we might get a phone that is remanufactured 
Right. But the remanufactured means that anything you would touch or feel is brand new and the insides might be old. Except for the battery, which is also brand Except new. for the battery. Now, here's a question. Do, and maybe this came out in, in your feedback. Is there like a special pile of phones that should be used for replacement? In other words, do they yeah. have a special storehouse of this somewhere in the back that they go or yeah. do they just grab a new one? The remanufactured phones like or anything like that, that's, you know, that it's sent off to be to the remanufacturing facility and those come back, not necessarily, I assume, to the same store, but those come back and it's like, here, please use these as your replacement stock. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's not, you know, and, and again, it doesn't, like I said, the others, you may, they may have none of that. So then when they need to replace, like if you, if your iPhone was bum on the first day, right. you're getting a brand new one because there were no remanufacturing. Remanufacturing takes time. Right. Uh, and so, and of course there's the, the customer replacement unit thing. So, uh, it's difficult to tell, like I, I, as many people said, they always just say, oh, they're all remanufactured. Which is not necessarily true. You may be getting a brand new one, you may not, but it's supposed to be, it shouldn't make a difference. You know what I mean? Like it, it, it should look and feel brand new because the outsides definitely are brand new and so is the battery. And it should work as well as a regular one. In fact, it's many people, many of the people who sent feedback said that these remanufactured phones have a better chance of being good than a brand new one because only a small percentage of the iPhones that come off the assembly line are like extensively tested, you know, in every possible, and you just can't, you just can't test five million of them to the degree that you can retest these uh, remanufactured phones. So, you know, you could get a dead on arrival thing, whereas the chances are very low that a remanufactured phone is going to be dead on arrival because it had all its insides had were tested to death to see if they could be used as remanufactured parts. Um, Power adapters, batteries, headphones, and uh, et cetera, are always brand new period. No exceptions. I guess they're just too small and cheap. Like it's not worth it to remanufacture them. Uh, Computer boards is a mixed bag of new and refurbished. And, you know, all of them are tested and so on and so forth. And all parts are warranted the remainder of your Apple Care warranty or 90 days, whichever is longer. So there you have it. I hope we have put this issue to bed entirely. It is a complicated process. And by the way, I'm sure these policies change. And I'm sure all these policies are subject to the discretion of the store manager or whatever. Like, you know, you can always make exceptions. Uh, so I actually feel a little bit better about you know, if my phone was bad and I got a remanufactured one, I wouldn't feel that bad about it because really what you care about is like that the outside looks nice and everything and certainly the battery is new, but like the remanufactured insides probably don't bother me that much. Yeah, they, yeah I know that. I know you and I know that they bother you a lot. Well, no, like because I, I'm, I'm on the same, like I want something that's going to be reliable and like how much human attention has been paid to the insides of a brand new iPhone to make sure it's 100% reliable versus a remanufactured one. So you're actually saying that you feel that maybe the remanufactured ones are better. Yeah, well, if, you know, again, if there's not some sort of design (laughs) flaw in the product or something, some obscure thing that like, at least, at least I know a human has totally like, I'm sure people were going to feedback said, oh, well, you know, in the assembly line, every component is tested and so on and so forth. But it just seems to me that you don't have enough time to dedicate the kind of human attention to testing the phones that come off the assembly line uh, as compared to the time you have to dedicate to remanufactured phones. So I don't know. I, I haven't had a problem with any of my iOS devices, not even a bad home button. Uh, although the home button on my current iPod is just a little wonky, but not enough for me to go to replace it. And it's out of warranty anyway. So, so there you have it. And I still haven't brought my Thunderbolt display display back in. Cool. Can we do our first sponsor? It's a good time. Sure. Yep. You go cough or whatever you're in. You don't sound as bad. Like when you first started, you sounded awful. Uh, I'm muting while I cough. Oh, okay. Well, our first sponsor today is Squarespace.com. Everything you need to make an amazing website, fully hosted, completely managed, 
doesn't matter what kind of site you're going to make. I've told you about features a lot. So today I'm not going to tell you about their features. Well, maybe I'll mention that it's like drag and drop stuff. You don't need to know CSS or HTML. Or if you do, you can become a developer and you can SFTP or use Git to tweak and modify and customize the templates or build your own. But that's not what I'm going to tell you about. The reason why we use Squarespace and the reason why you might want to use Squarespace is that it's basically foolproof uh, because I would rather spend my time doing shows and building this business uh, than building software to do something that is a solved problem. And they've done a really, really good job at solving this problem. And they're going to save you a lot of time. You don't need to worry about scaling. You don't need to worry about downtime. You don't need to worry about design even. And if you're building something for a customer or a client that you have, you want to deploy it, you want to make sure they're not going to screw it up (laughs) because that's what customers sometimes do. You can give this to them and you can put it in front of them and uh, you know that they will not mess things up because they can't. Really great software, really great company behind it and uh, they've been a great support to us here. Love it if you would go and check them out. You get what you pay for. I say that all the time. Uh, I like to understand completely my relationship with the company. I don't, uh, I don't think, think things should be free if they're really good. And uh, Squarespace is not free. I mean, it's free to start out and try. But it's 10 bucks a month for the standard plan, 20 bucks for the unlimited plan. If you sign up for a year, you get 20% off. If you sign up for two years, you get 25% off. And in either case, you get a free domain name with it. And uh, if you use my code, you're going to get an additional 10% off, whether you do the month-to-month thing or not. Code is Dan sent me 10 because it's October 10th month. Dan sent me 10. You can go to squarespace.com slash five by five. And even just going there will support the show. That's all you have to do is visit that URL. It supports the show. But uh, consider signing up while you're there. Squarespace.com slash five by five. What's next, John? I think I will do one more follow up item and then we'll be, and then we'll move on. Okay. We do this one quickly. This is about the iPod touch wrist strap. We talked about on the last show. Why does it have a wrist strap? Why doesn't the phone have a wrist strap? Is it because kids use the iPod Touch and kids drop it more? Uh, will the will the strap? Could they, can you imagine the strap ever coming to the phone? Uh, will people use it? All sorts of questions like that. And so here are the, the, lots of theories we got. The number one piece of feedback, and I guess we didn't mention this on the show, is that the idea that the wrist strap is on the iPod Touch because cameras typically have wrist straps, and it's emphasizing the improved camera on the iPod Touch or emphasizing. Uh, its use as a camera. Uh, and so here are a couple of variations in that theory. Sam A. wrote in to say that the camera theory is corroborated by the fact that the iPod Touch page on the Apple website shows the strap only in the picture promoting the improved camera. So if you go to the iPod Touch page, it's like a new, taller screen and faster CPU and blah, blah, blah. And in the little section, they say better camera. That's the only one that shows it with the strap. And it shows it you know, horizontal, like a, a point-and-shoot camera would be with the strap. Oh, and Sam A also, many people sent this feedback, but Sam A did as well, uh, that we, uh, I said the wrong price for the iPod Touch on the, on the show. It's not $250. Uh, it's actually $299, but that's only because only 32 and 64 gigabyte models are available. And so those are the same prices they always were. There's just no more 16 gig model. So it's still, I mean, the bottom line is it's still to get the good, quote unquote, the good new iPod Touch. The starting price is higher than it was before, but it's actually 300 not uh, $250. Uh, but those aren't incre- those aren't you know like those aren't technically increases in prices because they're the same as the thirty two and sixty four. Although I'm still fairly cranky about the memory sizes of these iPods. Like how many years can you just keep going with sixteen, thirty two, and sixty four and just say, oh, like that's you know, <laughs> flash RAM never gets cheaper. Hmm, isn't that curious, right? Like the sixteen. I'm glad they got rid of the eights. I feel like the sixteen should all be gone. 
and there should be a 128, a 30, you know, they just need to shift them up a year. Maybe they don't double them a year. Maybe they stay the same for two years and crank up, but Apple is notoriously bad about, uh, their previous really bad habit was putting a ridiculously low amount of stock RAM in their Macs, which always boggled my mind because I, like, I know their margins are big on the RAM, especially the, for the crazy prices they charge and they make up all their money in that, you know, but it, like it makes your it makes your own product look worse. It makes your operating system look worse. It makes your apps look worse to have a RAM starved Mac. Like when they were coming with like yeah. you know, two two gigs of RAM, it just it's painful. Like you know someone, it's like, hey, I got a new Mac, and you help me come set it up, and you go to their house, and you're like, oh god, you have two gigs of RAM, and so all these cool things that I wish I could show you, you're going to be grinding your crappy 5400 RPM. Like this is old technology, but you're going to be grinding your 5400 RPM. Uh, laptop drive and everything's going to be really slow and you're going to be disappointed and boy this machine would really fly if it had 4 or 8 gigs of RAM and replace those numbers with whatever the modern equivalents are. Apple used to be terrible about RAM. They're getting a little bit better these days. Uh, and what's but, the, what do you think the thinking was behind that John? Why, why have such small allotment of RAM in oh, these because machines? I, I think a lot of the margin would be in the RAM because you'd be like, uh, you know, anyone who knows anything would be like, oh, no, I'm not buying the stock RAM. I'm always going to add more. And if you're lazy, you just say, oh, well, I'll have Apple add more. And they would charge you crazy markup on the additional RAM. And, you know, even nerds are susceptible to that. Like, I would always buy my own third-party RAM. But sometimes you're like, nah, if I'm just doubling it from four to eight on my wife's laptop, I'll just order it from Apple. I know I'm losing, like, 50 bucks, but it's just, you know, you just, you just, you know, want to do it. like all my mac pros i always buy with the minimal amount of ram and then buy third-party ram because it was crazy to buy you know apple's ram was tremendously expensive and the fully buffered uh dims that are in these mac pros uh, were you know incredibly expensive to begin with and then apples were twice that price and so that really would start to add up but sometimes you just get lazy and i think apple knows that i think apple knows that people are going to get talked out of the bargain basement bottom and get the one with a little more ram but I just I still see a lot of people with the bargain basement one. That's not that's just not a good machine. It makes it makes Apple look bad. They're making themselves look bad. So I'm glad to see them crank that up a little bit. I think they have the same exact problem with iOS devices. That an eight gig device just makes Apple look bad because you put like three apps on there with the stupid Retina graphics, and now you're hosed, <laughs> right? And even a sixteen, it's like you know I got a season of uh, you know my favorite TV show, and now, like, <laughs> nothing else. <laughs> yeah, and then yeah. you feel then it's not so easy to manage storage on iOS devices. We all know this. Like even experts have like, how, how do I free up some space? It's not like you you know, they, they try to keep you from hosing yourself where you just can't randomly delete stuff. I guess you can delete apps, but it's like, well, go to the storage management, which no one knows where that is, and see which apps taking up more room. And is, and people might think, oh my god, this this application is huge. It's not the application; it's just all the files associated with that application are lumped into that application. If you just delete the files, but maybe there's no UI to do that, so you have to use iTunes, and it's it's a problem. So I, I, I think it behooves Apple to crank up that flash memory a little bit faster than they are. All right. Uh, Jim Lipsy says that Apple didn't add the wrist strap as a feature of the iPod touch. They added an accessory mount point and included a demo of what you can do with that accessory mount point. And he, he likens it to the Kensington security slot. Like, you know, what the, he's saying the feature is not the strap. The feature is the little bump out thing. And hey, you know, that you could do whatever you want with that. And Apple says, for example, you can use a strap. And I think that's interesting to see if other, uh, you know, third-party accessory manufacturers start re- releasing all sorts of other things that you can attach to that, that thing. I'm not sure quite how sturdy that is. I don't know if it's Kensington security slot sturdy, but uh, someday I'll see one and I'll check it out. Barbara Tada, Tada? says in Japan it's very common for ladies to have multiple little charms attached to their phone mm-hmm. by the loop for the wrist strap. Right. Uh, so there you go. Maybe that was partially influenced by that, the idea of you want to attach dangly things to it. And 
by the way, I'm not a dangly key person, and it seems to me, I don't want to be sexist here, but it seems to me that if you were to look at the key ring or keychain of all the males in the United States and all the females, there would be more dangly things on the females' keychains on average. It seems yeah, no, to me absol- that way. Absolutely right. And uh, my producer, Hattie, is shaking her head yes. And and it's it's true. Her keychain is like 20, 30 feet long with things looped on. And she doesn't even have a bad one. Yeah, it's like, and mine, it's, it's like, like the janitor. minimum. I have like one ring. And the idea that I have to have like my office keys, I even have a separate ring for those because I don't want to schlep that around with me if I don't need it. Yeah. like the, the, What's you your know, key ring look like, John? Oh, God, have, I'd love to see that. I have a single, I have a good key ring story, but I'll save it for the after dark. Okay. We have time. But I yeah. just have a single metal ring with the only the keys that I need on it. There are no accessories. There are no additional things. It's as small as I could possibly make it. Even that's too, you know, that's too much. I bet you get yeah, a George Costanza little, wallet little, though, don't the you? The little remote door opener thing for your car. Those, those are too, huge. I don't like that. You've got a George Costanza wallet though. Five bucks says. I do not have mm, a George Costanza. I bet you do. I keep, I keep it pretty tight. Now we'll see. I'll be the judge of that. All right. And finally, Tom Insom says, it doesn't matter which devices get dropped the most. What matters is what the purchaser thinks will be dropped the most. Adults buying themselves iPhones probably think themselves competent and safe. But when buying touches for kids, maybe they want to strap. So it's a sales time feature. That's another interesting angle on it. doesn't matter what gets dropped more because we were pondering that last show. Do iPod touches get dropped more? Like Apple would know based on like their repair rates. Maybe they could say percentage of iOS devices that come back with damage from dropping and maybe the iPod touch is way higher than the iPhone. But he's saying it doesn't matter what actually gets dropped more. All that matters is what people think will get dropped more. So if you're going to buy your kid an iPod touch, the strap is a sales feature to say, oh, don't worry, it comes with a strap. Whether the kid will ever use the strap or whatever, it's, it's to get you over the hump and buy the thing. So I thought that was an interesting angle. I think that's all we have on straps. Time to get to today's topic. We're doing pretty well, I think, so far. Yeah, we're doing good. Today's topic is saved over from last week. I want to talk about app.net and saved over from many, many weeks ago. I want to talk about tent.io. That was in my notes. I don't remember how long ago, but it's just, I've just been dragging it along. And now finally the time is right to talk about these two things. Again, uh, we've talked about app.net on past shows about their funding model, about the Kickstarter like project that didn't actually use Kickstarter about how I funded it, but uh, had my doubts about it, all sorts of stuff like that. The reason it comes up again or came up again last week is because app.net started something called the app.net developer incentive program. The link is in the show notes. This is a system whereby app.net disperses money to developers of app.net clients. And so for this first thing, so they're going to be dispersing at least $20,000 per month to eligible app.net developers. Uh, and it starts on October 1st. Uh, so that was a couple days ago. Uh, and here's the interesting parts. The the dollar amount will be allocated to participating developers based on their scores in relation to the total score among participating developers. So basically, if you are a user of the app.net service, you know, and you paid some money to be a user of the app.net service, you have like a little slider type thing that shows all here are the apps you used for this month, the, the client apps for app.net that you use. Adjust these sliders based on how valuable you think they are to you. So it's not based on like how much you use them, whatever. You just have sliders and say, you know, application number one, that was the most valuable to me. I put the slider all the way to the right. Application number two, maybe do it halfway or whatever. I don't think they have to add up to some total. It just like adjust the sliders based on how valuable they think they are. Obviously, if you didn't use an application, it won't show up on your list of things that you used. And I'm assuming you get to do this after the month is over. So you can't retroactively go back and use an app that you forgot to use or something. Uh, 
So based on how many people, you know, it probably just comes down to a ratio. They add up all of those scores and see who, what the number one most valuable one was and the number two and the number three and figure out how they break down uh, percentage wise and they divvy up the pot of money amongst the applications according to the percentage. Right. Um, so a couple other points on this. This program is entirely optional. You, if you are a developer of app.net clients and you don't want to participate, you don't have to. It, you know, just ignore it. It goes away. Uh, developers are free to monetize their applications through their own mechanisms. So this has no effect on how you want to make money from your app.net client. You want to sell it on the app store. You want to give it away for free. You want it to be open source. You want to sell it from your website. You want to have a subscription. Like Whatever you want to do with your app.net client, make money however you want. App.net doesn't care. You don't want to participate in this program. You don't have to. Uh, they say this should be thought of as a bonus for building software that app.net member, members use and love. Uh, and the, the final point in their little fact here, I think, is a really important one. It says, it is important that users do not feel pressured, bullied, or guilted into providing feedback. Anyone who's used eBay knows how this goes. You must send me fee- five-star feedback. Send me feedback. I need you to say I'm awesome because... Oh, terrible, right? So you cannot do that. They say, therefore, developers who attempt to influence the incentive program by directly soliciting votes from the users will be suspended from the program. So if you even try to say, hey, guys, don't forget, you know, put my slider all the way up to the end and say I'm super valuable at the end. That's it. You're out of the program. Right. And I think these are all excellent rules. And the system is definitely structured in a way that it doesn't mess with anyone else's stuff. And you can totally ignore it if you don't think it's important. Uh, Now, what surprised me about this, like since the last week when this came out, is that lots of people have come out against this program. And that surprises me because it seems like, oh, you don't, you don't like it? Like, don't, don't use it. And, like, and, it, and it doesn't seem to affect you one way or the other, but it's like the mere existence of this program like, poisons the well in some way and makes, it makes the ecosystem for app.net client applications worse in some way. And I just don't see that. But I have put a link to something written by Charlie Kindle called Paying Developers is a Bad Idea that is actually referencing the idea of, like, RIM and Microsoft and stuff like that, trying to pay developers to right. write for their sort of beleaguered uh, mobile platforms. Huh, legitimate use of that term against non-Apple companies. <laughs> Achievement unlocked. Uh, <laughs> hey, write, write, uh, write your application, port your application to RIM, you know, right. and we'll pay you $10,000 guaranteed and blah, blah, blah. So, like, so here's a quote from the thing. Paying developers to target your platform is a sign of desperation. Doing so means developers have no skin in the game. A platform where developers not, do not have skin in the game is artificially propped up and will not succeed in the long run. Like, I agree with all of this. Like, if you, if you can't get people to write apps for your platform and your solution is I'm going to pay you to do it, that seems bad to me. But I, I feel like there's a difference between that and what app.net is doing. Because it's not like they're... It's not like app.net, the company, is taking a wad of its own money that came, you know, that's just like, it's part of their budget and paying people outright, please make an application for us, we'll give you $10,000. Instead, what they're doing is taking some small portion of the money that their users pay to use the service, which right away is totally different than, you know, these companies who, well, I guess maybe they're taking money from people who buy RIM playbooks or something, but it just seems different to me because it's a more direct line. And they're giving it to people who are already like they're already making applications and they're giving it based on how much the users like those applications. So if someone makes some, all right, fine, we'll make a stupid port of our application to the rim playbook and it's a crappy port, but we don't care. We get our money. Thanks. See you later. Right. If you make a cruddy app.net application, you're not going to get any of this money because no user is going to market as valuable or even use it at all. Right. Uh, so I think the incentives are 
pretty much correctly aligned. And I also kind of like the fact that it's, a, at least initially, a pretty small amount of money. $20,000 split among how many possible applications. It's not going to make you rich or anything. It's just like a nice little bonus. Yeah. But I think, I think all of the incentives are correctly aligned. Make an application that people like. Don't bug them about it. And if they actually like it and move the little slider up, you get a little money at the end of the month. Like, what's, what's so bad about that? And, you know, and, and let them make their money however they want. Let them sell through the app. So, like, this, this does not affect their business at all, right? Uh, it remains to be seen how, just how low profile it will be. Maybe no one will ever vote. And so, like, three people will vote and give, and, and the whole pot will go to, like, whatever those three people liked. Maybe being prompted to vote for which applications you like could be done in an intrusive and annoying way, and it might annoy the people who use the service. I don't know. Uh, at this point, I think all the people involved in app.net are kind of, uh, like the participants, like me and you and the other people, it's all kind of a kumbaya. Uh, we're a bunch of nerds. We all love each other, type of thing. And so we'll all like be enthusiastically going, "Oh, I love this app. Let me put my slider up." And I'm, you know, you know, give feedback to the apps we like. Uh, that may change if the, the service ever becomes really popular. And this may seem to be an annoyance because, like, I don't care which apps get money. I'm just never going to look at that. I just won't vote. Like, voting is not mandatory. I assume. Um, So I got actually got a little bit of feedback about this from uh, Dalton Caldwell, the app.net founder. Mm. I asked him, your bro. Could, yeah. I asked him if I could quote him, <laughs> quote his email on the show, but haven't heard back from him. So I can't really quote his Can email. you paraphrase it? Uh, I mean, basically he agrees with that. The, the this thing that paying developers to uh, write for your platform is a bad idea, but he, he says that's not what they're doing. Uh, and he actually retells a story about his previous company where RIM uh, and Microsoft actually wanted to pay them to port their stuff over, but they turned them down because it just seemed ghetto. And this is not the same thing. This is more of a, a way to reward developers who build applications that users like. Like that's the whole, you know, everyone's incentives are aligned. We want users to be happy. We want developers to be happy. If developers are not making users happy, then they don't get anything, you know. And presumably, if a developer is making a cruddy application, they would have trouble selling it as well, right? Um, what's the next part of this? I think the next thing I want to talk about is... Did I put this in the show notes? This week was kind of a big week, week for app.net for an interesting reason related to this. Now, let's keep them in suspense. Let's, let's do the second sponsor and then... All right. Because we'll I'm, 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 this is a good topic. All right. I mean, they're all good, John. Shutterstock.com has over 20 million stock photos. They do vectors, they do illustrations, they do video clips. If you're looking for something, if you're building something, you're building a website, you're building a presentation, you want to put something on uh, some swag that you want to you know, give away at a, at a show, you just need some color for your website, whatever it is, go check these guys out. They've got photographers, artists, illustrators all around the world. It's not like uh, it's you know, Western-centric. We've got a lot of listeners over in, uh, in Asia. Did you know that, John? And there's photos and stuff from all corners of the earth. It doesn't matter. You need, you need an image for a mock-up you're working on? Go check these guys out. It doesn't matter. And what I really like about them is they don't nickel and dime you. They basically, everything out there, it's one price. It's always the highest, best quality. You don't have to pay extra for that, like many other sites. It's one deal. And as you're browsing around, you don't have to open up a million tabs, which I don't really like. They have a really cool light box. You just say, oh, I like this one. Check it in your light box. And at the end, you decide what you want to keep, what you want to buy, what package you want to put together. Done. And they even have an iPad app for all of this stuff. Because they like, uh, like the iOS people. 
And they have all kinds of licensing too. That's another question somebody's asked me. They have enhanced licenses so that if you want to put something and print it or put it on swag or use it in your, yeah, you can get that. They offer that. So here's what you do for our listeners, John, you can get 30% off any package once you find the images you'd like and decide to purchase. Again, they're all on board with this Dan sent me thing. Dan sent me 10. That's all you got to do. Shutterstock.com. Dan sent me 10. 30% off. And go check them out. Thanks very, very much. They're a new sponsor. Shutterstock.com. Go check them out. Good job correctly surmising that I was blowing my nose when you yeah. tried to ask me a I question. Figured, so. I figured something was going on. So is, this, is 30% the record for highest discount offered on the show? That's it might big. be. That is big. All right. Kudos. Oh. So the, the important app.net happenings this week. Uh, was it's a big one. NetBot was released. And as you might guess from the name, if you are familiar with TapBots, makers of many fine iOS products whose names end in bot, NetBot is sort of an app.net version of TweetBot, which is an extremely popular Twitter client for iOS. Uh, Great. First of all, this this is my iOS Twitter app of choice. It's also the app that I use on, or application that I use on OS X. And when this thing came out, now, because just, just yesterday, somebody started uh, complaining, saying, Dan, for someone who talks about app.net so much, you sure don't use it. Well, that's because I haven't had a good iOS app. No offense to all the people who have been making them. Uh, but this is the one. This is the one I've been waiting for. Yeah, I've been using uh, app.net more than some of you other people who are extremely widely followed on app.net, I might add. Anyway, I've been using it uh, any way that I can. And before there were iOS clients out, there were web clients that you could use on iOS with a little, you know, just HTML5 web app and make a little home screen icon for it, like short message with like the vowels removed. Right. That was actually not bad. It was actually pretty good. And I was using it that way in iOS for a while. And then uh, I started to use River, R-I-V-R, uh, because that was a, a fairly recent, maybe like a week ago, iOS client. And like, oh, this is, this is pretty good. It's, you know, it's better than the web one. Uh, but the reason NetBot is such a big deal is because TweetBot is so incredibly popular and TapBots is, you know, a top tier iOS developer. Not that I'm saying any of the people making the, you know, app.net was an opportunity for people who are not well known uh, developers to make a name for themselves. Like, hey, the very best app.net client is blah. And you've never heard of these guys, but they make the best. It's kind of the same way, you know, Icon Factory made its name with Twitterific or, or, or TapBots for that matter with TweetBot. Like, you come onto the scene and enter a space that either hasn't isn't that crowded or you are the head and shoulders above everyone else and you become a name right and then maybe like the next time some social network thing comes along people want you to to port your thing over there uh the interesting thing about netbot is that netbot has been in development long before this developer incentive program was announced uh, and you can tell if you look at the like they have some services that log which uh application you're using to post to uh app.net and there was a very popular client whose client string was alpha. My understanding is that that was actually NetBot in disguise, you know, during the beta testing period. So that's been going on for a while. Like they didn't jump in here when they said, oh, $20,000 divided amongst 10 different client applications. We got to get some of that. No, they sell the application. I think it's like $3 or $5 or something. They sell it on the iOS app store and that's how they plan on making their money. Uh, and I think they're doing pretty well. If you look at the stats, I wish I could find this page with the thing of like, what percentage of post app.net are made by which clients? And number one with a bullet is NetBot and its previous incognito alias, Alpha. Uh, and everybody who is doing that paid money to get NetBot. And
And the good thing about app.net is that everybody who's on app.net paid money to be on app.net. So they've proven they're willing to pay money for the service and what's, you know, a couple more bucks. Now, I bought NetBot as well. Uh, I, I have a tremendous number of Twitter clients. I have TweetBot. I have Twitterific. I have a bunch of other ones that have long since been deleted off my phone that I bought back in the day all the way back to like Twinkle. Do you remember that one? Hmm, vaguely. They, they would be so not within the, the uh, developer guidelines of Twitter because they were like trying to build their own social network on the back of Twitter. Anyway, I buy lots of Twitter clients, but and I buy them because they're a couple bucks and I want to try them out. But I have not ever really truly left my first love, which is Twitterific, on both the Mac and on iOS. Uh, so I've had TweetBot on my phone forever, but I just don't use it. Uh, but NetBot is, I think, the at least the most polished uh, app.net client. I was about to say Twitter client on the phone available. Now, I would still love to have Twitterific available on on the, the iOS instead of NetBot. Mm-hmm. I don't know what they would call it. Apparific? <laughs> dot, dotterific? Something like that? Apparition. There you go. That'd be a good one. That. Hey, I'm going to put that out there. Apparition. Good name for a nap.net client go for it serious run with it yeah someone i'm just an idea guy john i know someone did adian a-d-i-a-n which is a play on a the letter a the letter d letter n for app.net that was a cute name uh i was using what was it rhino or something like that before yeah, that yeah i i, I the, the this is the magic of the ios app store if you think about it like you know people like oh you know if they know me they're like oh he, he only uses twitterific yeah but i buy all the other applications because they're like three bucks and it's like oh you know, you never know. How are you going to know? Like, there's no trials. So it makes you go, all right, well, I'll buy it. Like, it, you know, it may seem like I'm only supporting Twitterific, but I buy every other app anyway. And they don't, I, I bet those people enjoy me buying their applications and then not using them because I don't bug them with, uh, with feedback. Uh, but speaking of bugging with feedback, people may be wondering, this is a little bit of a tangent here, but why, uh, what, what's the difference between a net bot and a theoretical Twitterific thing? Why do I use Twitterific and not, and not uh, Tweetbot when I, for Twitter? What's right. the big deal? Yeah, what's the big deal? Like, it's just because of the graphics. Like a lot of people, the, the bot, you know, the tap bots graphics are very sort of, they do a custom UI that looks really nice, but it is kind of heavy. It's not like a minimalist interface. You know, they, they do their own thing and they make their own widgets and the widgets look really cool, but they are kind of heavy. And some people don't like that heaviness or they don't like that it doesn't look native. Like that, it doesn't look like Apple's other application. It looks like it looks like a Tweetbot application or a, a Tapbot application. So you like that or you don't. That's kind of an aesthetic choice. But that's not what keeps me away from Tweetbot. What keeps me away from Tweetbot and what makes me wish I had Twitterific for App.net is that I want what I call, for lack of a better term, a unified timeline. And I, for all the people who are making App.net clients since day one, I've been like, okay, guys, like I know you're all making App.net clients. I would like to use your clients, but I would like a unified timeline. So the first person to make a client with a unified timeline is going to get my, you know, my business if they sell it or my enthusiastic support if they don't sell it. And I'll just say, oh, you know, because people ask me, what what client are you using to read app.net? And if you make me one with a unified timeline, I will use your client. And so I used a series of uh, app.net clients for the Mac in the beginning, but none of them offered a unified timeline. And then finally Wedge did. And that's the one I'm currently using on the Mac. I should put a, get a URL for that. I think it's like wedge.net.natesm.com Are you asking uh, me? I don't know what yeah. this is. wedge.natestedman.com Nate Stedman. Why his, would I know that? His handle is Nate SM. Oh, of course. Nate, Nate, Nate Stedman. Yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. Like, you make, it, make a name for yourself. I'd never heard of Nate Stedman before. Uh, but now... Know, who uh, doesn't know Stedman? I mean, he's but the now best. I have, and he made an app.net client, which is 
you know, interesting and it looks like a lot of the other Twitter clients, but the big feature, it has the unified timeline. Now, mm-hmm. what do I mean by that? What I mean by unified timeline is on both Twitter and uh, app.net and any of these similar services, m- uh, many applications, I would say most applications at this point, let you d- choose what you're viewing. So you can view what they usually call your timeline, which is the the posts from the people you follow and also includes the, the posts that you make, Right. And then there's another, usually a tab or a button or a view or some other screen that you change to that shows replies and or mentions where these are people you don't follow, but they wrote at whatever your handle is in the name or they replied directly to you. Sometimes those are distinguished like a direct reply versus someone that just mentioned your name in the middle of of a a post. It's so hard not to call these tweets. Uh, (laughs) And that uh, that is what I would say is a non-unified thing. So a unified timeline is what Twitterific has. And by the way, Twitterific was, I believe, the very first Twi- Twitter client application that wasn't a website. I could be wrong on this, but if it wasn't the first, it was surely the first prominent one. Uh, and it had from day one what I call a unified timeline, which is that the posts from the people you follow and also the posts from the people who mention your name or reply to you are in a single list, sorted of chronologically. And they're color-coded and stuff so you can see like, oh, this is a reply. So you can tell like, why am I seeing this? It's because someone mentioned my name versus this is a, a post from somebody who I follow. Uh, and anytime I mention a unified timeline, lots of people say, I don't like unified timeline. I, please don't listen to this person because I just make requests. You know, anyone who makes a cool client, I'm like, hey, I'd love it if you had a unified timeline, guys. And then other people say, don't listen to him. I don't want a unified timeline. Don't put that in there. I mean, you know, we all we all can petition developers to make the application we want and the developers decide what to do and it's fine. Uh, but it's really not an either or proposition because a lot of these applications, Wedge included, have like a little sidebar thing that has icons, like a little at sign that shows your replies and like a little house icon that shows like your timeline. And then there's just another icon that has a house with a little at in it that shows them both combined. Like it's just an additional view on the stream of things that are happening. In iOS clients, it's a little bit harder because sometimes it's like, well, we don't have a room for another button there. And so we have to choose, do we include replies in the single stream or not? Uh, and so maybe they might not want to add that. I mean, you know, it's not, developers can make the applications they want to make. And if you look at the the Twitter applications out there, I believe most of them do not have unified timelines. But uh, the thing I'm always stressing to people I'm discussing is that unified timeline is not some crazy thing that I made up. It's what Twitterific did since day one. The The grandfather of all Twitter clients and I've been using it since day one, and I like it. And so well, this is like, be- this just reflects the way that you, in particular, have always used Twitter. You use Twitter, yeah. almost like a, an it, it's an an email client of sorts for you. Yeah, and that, that's one of the questions from from developers is like oh, asking me because I'm the prominent person complaining about it. What what is it about a unified timeline that you like? And I think we've actually mentioned this on past shows, and it, it's a pretty simple answer for me. I just want to check one place for stuff. It drives me crazy to to read, you know, Twitter or app.net or whatever and say, I got to look at my timeline, then I got to look at my replies. Then I got to look at my timeline, then I got to look at my replies. I want to see one list of stuff that I'm working my way through, like one queue. It's like, why why separate your, your queue into two separate things? Uh, it's one place to check, right? And the other part of it, since I tend to get a lot of replies from people who I don't follow, mostly because I follow very few people and, you know, second, because I have a lot of followers, and so they'll reply to me and I converse with them. Like I'm, I'm not just looking at the replies with curiosity. I reply back to them. And with a, with a split timeline, 
my replies to them show up in the timeline, but their replies to me show up on this other pane. Like they're not interleaved. So it's hard to keep track of the conversation. If they were all in one thing, I could see I say this, then you say that, then I say this, then you say that, then you say that, then I say this, right? It's like a conversation in a single place. Instead of being split up into two panes, then I have to reconcile them by date stamp, which is hard because they always say like 2M for two minutes ago or something. And you have to, you know, which one was refreshed at the right time and are those numbers updating? It's crazy making to me. Now, when I, t- I think when I talked about this originally on the show, I said that the only, uh, not the only legitimate reason, but a reason that I could see that you would definitely want to split things if you have a tremendous number of followers. Like I have a lot of followers, but not like, you know, famous person number of followers. Like if you have like a hundred thousand followers or a million followers or whatever, you've got to have those replies on a separate tab and those mentions on a separate tab because otherwise you'll never be able to read anything from the people you follow. And maybe lots of famous people don't read anything from the people they follow anyway. But, you know, Gruber is my example. He's got to have his replies on a separate tab because anytime he posts anything, it's a thousand replies and he would it would destroy his timeline for him. Like if every time you post anything, 500 people make inane replies to you or not or not, not inane, even, you know, thoughtful replies, you can't read your timeline anymore because it's just totally filled with replies. So that I feel is a very legitimate reason to absolutely want to have replies and mentions separate. There are, there are many other reasons, including just personal preference that you want them separate. Like that's just the way you want to do it. But that is a strong reason. But it still seems weird to me that the dominant metaphor has become two separate places because I see, I can imagine all these people, you know, checking the two places for each thing. Like, it, it, you know, people don't like having to check both Twitter and app.net and I'm getting annoyed by that too, right? Uh, but Twitter's terms of service don't allow a unified client and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, but now you're making yourself have to check four places. You've got to check your Twitter timeline, your Twitter mentions and replies, then your app.net timeline, and then your app.net mentions and replies. And one of them highlights, but the other one doesn't and you're switching back and forth and it just, I... I do not like it. So I'm very happy that Wedge provides a unified timeline and I would love it if an iOS client would provide a unified timeline. It doesn't mean that that client has to provide it as the default. It doesn't mean that it has to remove any of the other views. You know, I'll take what I can get. Make it it a preference. Make it uh, another button on a toolbar. You know, whatever you want to do. You know, for example, Twitterific has a separate view for mentions as well. I never use it, but it's there if that's what you want. Uh, So I really hope that in the uh, diversity of developers out there making clients for app.net that somebody on iOS does this. And I would encourage the people who like who do it the other way to give the unified timeline a try because I think it's not going to be as crazy as I think it's going to be, especially if you don't get a, a ton of replies. It, like it just, you know, it just makes it have one place that you're going to check. Uh, I've certainly tried the other way for a long, like basically every, every other client that I try is, is has split. And like, now I'm using NetBot as my main app.net client right. and it's split. Like, so I'm doing it that way. I'm, it's not like I'm basing this on like fear of the unknown. I have many, many years experience <laughs> using uh, the split timeline. So I would encourage people who use a split timeline to give a unified one a try. And where can you do that? Well, Twitterific on the Mac or on iOS, or if you're on app.net, try Wedge. Do you, do you free, have so. any predictions on the possibility of a... Twitterific type app.net client from our friends over at uh, Icon Factory. Icon Factory. Well, that's the big thing about NetBot coming in. Like, so we've had these app.net accounts for a while. Like, I mean, you just mentioned people saying, oh, you're on app.net, but you never use it, right? Mm-hmm. And one thing is like, well, I'm not using it because I didn't find a client that I like or I just haven't worked it into my workflow or it's like annoying to check two places. Like, I'm already on Twitter. Do I have to check two places? But someone as prominent as TapBot's coming in with such a well-known property as the, you know, NetBot, TweetBot type brand. That says, oh, wait a second. Uh, this app.net thing might not be a joke. It's not just a bunch of crazy nerds and a bunch of like first-time developers trying to hack stuff together. Here, some serious stuff is going on. Uh, 
And the interesting thing is, I would imagine that doesn't cause a flood of new users. All it does is make all the users who paid 50 bucks like a month ago, like wake up and go, what? Mm-hmm. Wait, TapBot's made a client? TapBot's right. made a client? Right. I guess I'll I put, can use this service now. I'll, I'll put it on I'll put it on my phone. I know TapBot. I use TweetBot. I, I, I love it. I'll just put it next to the TweetBot. Now I got the the blue nightmare yeah. duck and the uh, gray nightmare duck. <laughs> nightmare duck. I'm terrified by that icon. I think it's, I think it's horrifying. Uh, beautifully drawn <laughs> I, I, my objection is to the to the concept of giant robo duck with big orifice anyway <laughs> and a great in the middle of the orifice uh and so the activity on app that has exploded in like mm-hmm. the past couple of days i mean you've noticed that right oh yeah totally it's it's great and, and like it used to be that i would i would look at app.net and there would be like two posts since yesterday now keeping up with app.net sometimes there's more activity there than in my twitter feed now granted you know in the microcosm of my nerd world yeah all my nerd friends and the people i follow are like over on app.net whereas just joe random person has never heard of app.net and none of the people he follow are over there but in the nerd world activity really picked up and i've got to think it's not because a flood of new people decided to pay 36 bucks or 5 bucks a month for app.net i think what it is is people who already paid woke up and started using the account they already had. And I think that's uh, a tremendously uh, important milestone in the history of app.net is that they got like a top tier developer to bless their service. Now for icon factory, getting back to your question, I'm sure like Tapbots, they had decided what their plan was for app.net long ago before the developer incentive program. And certainly like before they knew what the other developers are going, I don't think they were talking to each other and going, Hey, I can factor you can do the app.net. Cause we might do it. Like, I don't, I would imagine they don't have that type of communication, but who knows? Uh, but I think the calculus for tap bots probably was, we've got a well-factored application making a version of it for app.net would not be too difficult. We've already done like most of the work. If you make your application, if you factor it out well and you don't mix your UI with your, uh, you know, networking and content generation stuff, you can't, you know, it's not so bad to make uh, a, an application point to a different service. Uh, and they figured, you know, what the heck? It seems like th- they probably did the same calculus we just talked about. Like all those people showed a willingness to pay money. We know people like our products on Twitter. Maybe we'll make some money off of this. And I'm sure when they started the developer incentive program, they're like, oh, hey, you know, bonus, we'll probably get some of that too. So thumbs up, right? Icon Factory's got to be doing the same thing. I mean, Icon Factory, unfortunately, my understanding is they're in the middle of, I mean, they're always in the middle of, like, they're, they're working on Twitterific, their flagship product, and they right. made some posts to say, despite all these Twitter things that are happening, we are still committed to Twitterific, we're working hard on the next version, like, they made these blog posts on their website, you know, all systems go, we're, we're still doing that. This could be a distraction, but on the other hand, if their app is also well-factored, and if they figured, hey, well, I don't know, give it a try, maybe the next version of Twitterific, when it comes out, We'll have a companion application that works on app.net. I would not expect a version of the existing Twitterific like ported to app.net. I would say whatever the new version is, whatever that's going to look like for the Mac and iOS and iPad and you know all that stuff, there may be a version of that that appears on app.net. Again, this is based on no inside information. I'm just speculating, oh, speculating slash hoping, <laughs> you know, because I love that application. Uh, but if it isn't, hey, Wedge is coming along nicely and. Uh, as the one developer who is most responsive to my incessant whining about features and bug reports, I give uh, Nate Stedman's application a thumb up. And, and it's also free right now. So I just need something like that on, on iOS. So I think it's been a good week for app.net. Yeah, very good week for them. Best, maybe best week since they got their funding even. Yeah, I mean, like you know, they've gone in stages. One was this curiosity 
that I felt bad about even like I, I have to support it because I really want what they're doing to succeed, but I just feel like it's not going to. And Marco had the same feeling like, oh, it just seems like they're not going to make it, but I really endorse what they're doing, right? And the second one was, holy cow, they made their goal right. like twice over, right? And then it's like, now what? Like those two days where we all talk about app.net on app.net and then we go, all right, so uh, so what do we do? Is this it? Anyway, back to Twitter, right? Right. And But now it's like, all right, now this is getting serious. The people are there. The money is there. The client app is there. And now people are talking and they're not just talking about the fact that NetBot is there. They're not just talking about bugs in app.net clients. They're just having, you know, totally unrelated conversations about, you know, the normal stuff that you, you converse about. I don't know. They were talking about, you know, the Singleton conference and in my follow stream and, uh, what else? I made some question about whether you capitalize Boolean and documentation that has nothing to do with app.net. And that spawned a big conversation there. Like people are using it. I'm talking about podcasts, talking about five by five stuff. You know, people are using it as a real service now. So, you know, there's, it's, there's a stair step type thing. The next big, I post, I posted today. I was going to say I tweeted. I posted an app.net today that the next big step in uh, app.net's rise to power, fame and success is they need to have crippling performance and reliability problems. Because that, that seems like one of the stepping stones, right? You have to go through that phase. Otherwise, yeah. you, haven't, you haven't really made it. And that was half a joke, but it's kind of half a joke. <laughs> because what that means is that people are, you know, what, what it means is you're on the hockey stick now. Yeah. Like, your usage has gone up to such a degree that you just can't keep up with it. Right. Like, you thought you were prepared. You thought you had you know, a solution that would handle your scaling, but you just didn't anticipate like the huge ramp up in activity and like everything goes down and we see your fail whale and we complain about it and hopefully we stay with the service and, you know, so maybe that's the next stair step. Let's do our last sponsor, John, before you jump into your next speaking of thing. It's uh, Shopify.com, a hosted e-commerce solution. These guys are the, uh, really, in, in my opinion, the best e-commerce store around. This is who we use whenever we sell our t-shirts and anything else we've ever sold. In fact, going back way to the old days of HiveLogic when I used to sell t-shirts back there, uh, I've always used Shopify to do this because it's the simplest way to do it. It's the most straightforward way to do it. And uh, it, they, they, they really just handle everything. You can make their store look exactly the way that you want it to uh, just by customizing their templates. You have full control over the HTML, over the CSS. In fact, if you go to Shopify.com, well, go to Shopify.com slash 5 by 5 and you'll support the show, and you'll also get a discount I'll tell you about. But once you're there, click Examples. There are over 30,000 stores powered by Shopify, and most of them look completely different from one another. And on this Examples page, you can go in there, and you can totally see what's possible these are customized templates. These are unique designs. You know, so what if you're not a designer? Pick one of the templates. There's also a gallery of templates you can buy. You can spend you know, 10, 20 bucks for something that a professional designer has built, and you can customize it and use it for your own store. It's really, really cool. Uh, and these guys have been a longtime supporter, and, uh, and, and they are really, really great. These are the guys, again, that, that, that I use, and I totally believe in them and what they're doing. Um, oh, and by the way, the technical thing... They do something called Level 1 PCI DSS compliance. Well, if you want to sell something, there's a lot of government regulations you get to know about. There's a lot of security measures you're supposed to take. And uh, they do it. They do it all for you. It's all secure. It's all SSL. It's everything you could possibly want. And um, if, you, if you go to that, uh, that URL, shopify.com slash 5x5, not only will you support the show, 
you'll also get three months free instead of the typical one month free. Three months free. So you can open your store and sell stuff and uh, it's on us. So go check it out. Shopify.com slash five by five. All right. All right. Next bit. I guess I have to skip this little middle bit because we're running a little bit low on time. So I want to talk about tent.io or, okay. or just tent as they refer to themselves. Like tent.io is their domain because I'm sure tent.com.net and .org were all taken by domain squatters slash camping paraphernalia sellers. Uh, so they've got tent.io, which kind of makes sense because it's nerdy and IO input output, all that a stuff. D, it's it's a open decentralized social networking protocol. Right. I mean, like, this comes up in the context of app.net because it's its goal, not its goals, but like what the what you what would you do with tent.io? You kind of do similar stuff to what you do with app.net. And like app.net, there's the promise of doing more than just Twitter-like status updates with it. Uh, and so this has been around for a while. Like I said, I've had it in my show notes for weeks. Uh, what Tent is, is a protocol, not so much a company or a service. And the de- that's part of the decentralized thing. So to talk about centralized versus decentralized, I'm trying to explain it to the people who don't understand what the difference is there. Centralized is something like Twitter, Facebook, Netflix, or something like that. There's one owner of the service. Twitter is a corporation. They own Twitter. Facebook owns Facebook. Netflix owns that. Uh, and, and that defines the service. The owner defines the service. Twitter is Twitter Incorporated. Facebook is that company. Netflix is that company. Uh, to, to, uh, you know, to figure out what it is by seeing what it's not, it's as if Gmail was the only place you could do email. The Gmail was email. And we know that's not true. Gmail is an email provider. Email is the open decentralized service. But Gmail doesn't define email. If Gmail goes away tomorrow, email lives on. If Netflix goes away tomorrow, Netflix is gone. Streaming video isn't gone, but Netflix of the service is gone. Facebook, the company goes away. Facebook, the service goes away. And same deal with Twitter, right? And same deal with app.net. If app.net goes away, that service goes away as well because it is owned and defined by the company. Uh, decentralized, you can think of decentralized as a thing, not as a place or a company. So email is a thing, right? Gmail is like a place you go to do email. And Gmail is owned by Google, which is a company. But email is the thing. Um, and email is decentralized. Nobody owns email. So if, if Gmail starts doing evil things like putting ads in the middle of your outgoing mail or, you know, whatever, you pick another email provider. Email doesn't go away. You just you just say, OK, I don't like Google anymore. They are a provider of this decentralized service called email. But I can go to Yahoo, Hotmail, make my own hosting service. You could run your own mail server like email is an open decentralized protocol owned by no single company. Right. And it is kind of a, cha- a pain to change emails. Uh, so the owners of your, you know, your email service provider or sort of do matter a bit like, for example, if you have a crappy owner of your uh, email service who won't allow forwarding to your new address, I think Hotmail did that for a while. Like if you if you want or Yahoo, maybe I don't remember which one. If you wanted to forward to a new address, you had to pay money or whatever. So you'd, you'd want to change a new email and you tell all your friends, hey, everybody, uh, my new email is going address is going to be whatever at whatever service or my own server dot com or whatever. Uh, start emailing me there, but you also want people who don't have, who didn't get that update or things going to your old address to be forwarded to your new place. Uh, so it does make a difference who you pick as your email provider, but email itself cannot be killed by the evil deeds of any single company, by a company going out of business or anything like that. Uh, and in the end, you can change your email. Like sometimes it is painful, and you got to pay for forwarding, or you got to you know uh, all sorts of shenanigans. I I had an email address for two decades or something that I continued to pay for just because too much stuff kept going to it. And I did the conversion 
uh, to Gmail several years ago, and I still find ones that are going to that old email address that I no longer have. Uh, but it can be done. It can be done successfully. Uh, and once you do that, six, you know that that changeover, you change from Gmail to Hotmail to self-hosted to whatever you want. But you never leave email. Nobody leaves email. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen anyone do. Unless you leave the internet, like you can leave Twitter and you can leave Facebook, but you can't really leave email because <laughs> you're still in the same system as everybody else, right? When I thought and, I was out, they dragged me back. <laughs> yeah. Maybe Merlin's trying to leave email, but I don't think he's being successful. <laughs> he doesn't. That guy hasn't used a computer in years. <laughs> and so, so what this means is that no one bad actor can kill email, right? right. Bad actors can cause people to change services, and they have. Uh, most most nerds fled Yahoo and, Gmail, and Hotmail for Gmail because they didn't like those people. Most people left AOL mail, but none of those people could kill email. Um, so the next bit I have in the show notes is a story from Dave Weiner uh, entitled, this is from a while ago, entitled Protocols Don't Mean Much. Because Tent.io is a protocol like the protocols that make up email. And so uh, Dave is weighing in to say, you know, it does. anyone can write a spec, right? It doesn't, doesn't really matter how awesome your protocol is. What matters is the software supporting that protocol, what content is available through it, and how compelling that content is. And his point is that RSS, a, a protocol that he was intimately involved in, it became popular uh, not because of its great design, but because there was a significant amount of valuable content flowing through it. So RSS is popular because people who have blogs that people want to read uh, put in RSS feeds. And you didn't, you weren't interested in like, oh, I love the RSS protocol. You were interested in, oh, uh, this guy whose stuff I want to read, I want to know every time he posts something new, if I subscribe to his feed, this cool Mac application, that's the software supporting the protocol, is out there called NetNewsWire. And it will tell me when all the people I'm interested in post new stuff and I can read it. Uh, that's why RSS succeeded. Certainly not because it's an awesome protocol. And I think anyone who's worked with RSS might have some complaints about it. Um, uh, he points out sometimes a protocol is so bad that it can kill a chance of your thing catching on. Like, for example, the SOAP WSL. Did you ever actually do any of that stuff? Yeah, I did all that. I did SOAP. I did um, XMLRPC. I did all that garbage. What What is it? WDSL? I don't even remember the other acronym. The one with the W? Yeah. Those, those are hideous protocols. Awful. And, uh, yeah, and like they were so bad that I think that contributed greatly to that not catching on. And like, you know, REST and JSON, they're like, oh God, like, now we never have to look at SOAP again. Please just go away, right? Uh, so I, it only really works as a negative. If you have an awesome protocol, it doesn't matter if you don't have those other things. If you have a terrible protocol, yeah, it can kind of sink, right? Um, so he finishes with this. Think of protocol as a road. You could have a wonderful road, well-paved, wide lanes, great rest areas, but if it goes from nowhere to nowhere, it's not going to be very popular no matter how nice it is. Um, so I think basically what he means is that a good protocol alone doesn't get you that much. Uh, but of course, if the protocol doesn't meet some minimum level of sanity, I guess, like SOAP did not meet that minimum level of sanity, then you can end up having big problems. Um, now, getting back to email for a second, email's protocols were not designed for today's internet. Email's protocols, you know, SMTP, POP, uh, IMAP to some degree, were designed a long time ago in a very different world. SMTP and POP have very little security and security should be in like 17 levels of scare quotes, you know, because POP security used to be, you know, user space, username, pass space, clear text password going over an unencrypted channel. That's not that's not great. Like it was it was a kinder, gentler world back then. And people didn't really think about security that much. Right. Uh, and in both cases, SMTP and POP, there is no reliable method of global authentication. Like there's no ability to prove you are who you are. And some might say this helped 
SMTP and POP get along because there's no way you could herd those cats into any kind of central authority back then or even distributed authority for that matter. But to this day, I still have extreme trouble explaining to my parents that anybody can email anybody as anybody. This, this still boggles their mind because it doesn't seem like, like the mental model of the world of the modern computer user is that if you get an email from somebody, it came from them. And as anyone who spent you know, their, their misspent youth telnetting to port 25 and fake mailing people, <laughs> anyone can email anyone <laughs> as anyone. Like you just, it's just something you type in a header. Right. I can type anything. I can type the president yeah. of the United States. I can sure. type Steve Jobs. Don't you understand? And it's like, what do you mean? Wouldn't it know you're not? No, it wouldn't know. There's no global authentication. It's just whatever you type in the header. And I try to explain them. Well, you can trace it back through the hops and where the thing came from. Compare it to a legitimate mail and see if it came through the right SNDP service. But like they don't understand all that stuff. And, you know, it that is a you would say, like, how bad does a protocol have to be uh, to kill itself? Well, SNDP and POP are pretty ill suited to the modern world of the Internet. And yet through an accident of history, they happen to catch on. Um, but this is mostly a good thing because nobody owns SMTP and POP. That's why nobody owns email. And if there was a central uh, author- a global authentication method making it so you had to actually prove who you were, it would probably be owned by somebody, at the very least a government or something. And that would mean that email as a concept, as a thing, would be vulnerable to a single bad actor or multiple bad actors. Whereas now it's not because it's based on all these protocols. Now, uh, it also made them easy to implement with the lack of security and everything. Um, so the consequences of these things is one that it caught on everywhere. And the second consequence of SNTP and POP being the way they are is a consequence we all live with every day and which has had a tremendous impact on the global economy. And that's spam. You know, the, the consequence of making your protocol wrong, not wrong enough to kill it, but just wrong enough, not wrong, but like ill-suited to the current application, to, to the current environment, is that we all have to deal, deal with spam. We're all living with that now. And many attempts have been made to fix it. Oh, how about we make it a global authentication service? And everyone's like, man, no, I don't want to do that. Uh, oh, you know, Microsoft will, will manage your identity. No, I don't think so. How about you do domain keys and encrypt it? Like, there have been steps to try to make this better. But you can't get everybody on the same page. And it's all kind of like SMTP, POP, and, and IMAP, or gateways thereof, just so we can all talk to each other with email. Uh, so it's, it's a tough situation, and we're still living with the consequences. So I think this shows that protocols do matter and maybe maybe not as much as we wish they did like it, it, you kind of wish that SNDP and pop had been because of that they're so badly suited that we'd come up with better decentralized protocols of course the doomsday scenario would be you'd come up with some sort of centralized protocol and like email is dead we all use facebook messaging and that's that is the total doomsday scenario or we all use aol right i'm glad we dodged those bullets but we still live with the consequences of pop and smtp not being suited to their current uses um and so none of the alternate systems have yet gained the kind of universal support that the old school email protocols have. Uh, I think the lesson of this is that being user universal is more important than being good. Uh, and if something not so good becomes universal, we all suffer the consequences. All right, so back back to Tent, which is, you know, Tent is trying to def- define, uh, you know, a protocol like the, you know, not like the email protocols, but in the same way that like the protocol exists as an independent thing uh and anybody can implement that protocol uh just like anyone can implement an email server you know you want to make a service to compete with gmail go ahead write one you don't have to you know there's no proprietary protocol or gateway or whatever you can be part of the ecosystem so if you want to implement a set of servers or whatever called my cool you know 
service.com and it's a tent service and you can sign up for it, you can do that. You can participate in the ecosystem just like you, you could participate in the email system. People on your tent server are part of the same world. They can communicate with other people on other tent servers. All the way down to uh, the most granular thing in both email and tent is you could run your own email server, your own outgoing and incoming email server. Many nerds do this. Not many regular people, but many nerds do it. Well, you could run your own tent server. Then you were completely master of your own destiny. You just need some connection to the internet and you need an email server and uh, have your email client point to your email server and you're off to the races. Well, exactly the same thing in tent. If you, know, if you are a super paranoid tinfoil hat and you want to run your own tent server, you totally can. You are still part of the same system. That's what decentralized means. That you don't need the blessing from anybody else to run a tent server and be part of the tent service on exactly equal footing with everybody else who's part of the tent service. Uh, so here's a couple of excerpts from the FAQ. I think they've actually updated their FAQ since I pulled this many weeks ago, but I, uh, I think it's all still relevant. Um, one of the FAQ uh, questions is, can I switch tent servers? Like, what if I make a tent account on some server and then I want to switch? Like, you know, what if I want to switch email servers? They say, absolutely. You can take your relationships, your followers with you. Uh, you take your data and relationship with you and set up someplace else. And they've done it in a clever way where they have built into the protocol that when you move, like, uh, from one tent server to another, you tell all the people who, are, who you have relationships with on the tent network, hey, everybody, I'm over here now. Like, through the protocol. Like, you don't have to email. It's like, it's like an email. You have to send out an email to your friends and go, everyone, please update your address books. I'm not, and they don't. Like, trust me, from experience, they do not update their address books. People still have my ancient, non-existent email in their address books. Like, you're not relying on a human. The machine tells the other machines, you know, you used to be looking over here for this guy. Well, in the future, he's going to be over there. Update your database, right? Uh, and that's that's a built-in part of the protocol, which is, again, you know, they got a leg up on email because they figured in decentralized service, people might change service providers, and we don't want to make humans have to do all that updating. Um, one of the fact questions is, what can tent users do that they cannot do on other social networks? Like, what does decentralized buy you? And so tent users can take their relationships, the users they follow and the users who follow them, and their content with them. Tent lets them control their data, decide who sees it, and decide how they can use it. Uh, Tent is a distributed protocol, so if they don't like an app or service, they can change providers or write their own. I mean, write their own. Obviously, no one's going to do that, or almost no one. But uh, you own your content. You own your relationships. You don't have to beg, like Twitter, to let you extract your list of followings or followers, or let, let them, oh, please, Twitter, I want to download all my tweets, or secretly scrape them from your website. You own all your content, no matter where you go, and you can bring all of that stuff with you. Like, when you change services, you don't lose... Like when you change from Hotmail to Gmail, all your mail that was on Hotmail doesn't go over to Gmail with you unless you like manually forward it or do some hack that someone else uh, doesn't. You know, most people don't know how to do. Intent, it's built into the thing. You take your stuff with you no matter where you go. Um, here's some, some more geeky stuff. You don't have to tell anyone about your tent servers. You can run a tent server as a Tor hidden server, making it even harder for anyone to silence the voices online or track them down. So, you know, like email, like you can have an anonymous, impossible to track email account that you jump around and you can have a tent server that's like totally hidden from the world. I guess this would be like useful for people under oppressive government regimes to have a decentralized way to communicate in an encrypted hidden manner, all that stuff. Um, so what about federation? Yeah. And this is a definition of federation. I think I pulled this from the fact from Wikipedia. Federation is multiple computing and or network providers agreeing on standards of operation in a collective fashion. Uh, this term may be used when describing interoperation of two distinct, formally disconnected telecommunication networks that have different internal structures. This term may also be used when groups attempt to delegate collective authority of development to prevent fragmentation. So this is like, a federation is if you have 
multiple services that are totally different on the inside, but they talk to each other through in a common protocol on the outside. Uh, so let's see what, what else do they have about federated things here. Um, let's see. Private because private messages and other important features are beyond the scope of most federated protocols. User cannot send private messages to users of other social service providers. So because they're different on the internal side, it's difficult to private message from one to the other in a actually private way. Uh, federation is like decentralized service, but like with seems like with larger with larger chunks. Like you can imagine a, a federated system where. Twitter is one member and app.net is another and they agree to talk to each other through a central thing. But internally, Twitter and app.net are totally different and their protocols are totally different and their feature sets are totally different. And they just agree on this common protocol that's, you know, a lowest common denominator between them. Uh, oh, look, here's a note to myself. A note, a note from you to yes. you. Is it from that's your right. future self? From the past self. Oh. All right. So th- here's me trying to clarify the distinction between cent- decentralized and federated. So it's mostly one of evolutionary origins. Two systems created independently with different, differing internals that are made to work together through a third system, that's, that's federation, right? But if two systems are created from the start based on a single standard, that's decentralization. So tent is decentralized because everyone is, is participating in the tent protocol. And I assume the protocol will evolve and blah, blah, blah. That's decentralized. Federated is if tent and app.net or decide to cooperate with each other because they evolve totally separately. They're totally different internally, but maybe they also want to talk to each other. Uh, and it seems to me that private messaging can work in a federated system, but it's of course, it's a lot easier when they're all, you know, when everyone's working off the tent protocol and don't have to worry about internal differences. Here's a fact item. They added to the tent fact. Can I donate to tent? I'm, I'm sure you're not looking at my notes and I'm not sure if you've looked at the fact, but what do you think the answer to that question is? Mm. No, I'm not looking at your notes. That's the fact. Can I donate to Tent? What's the answer? That's I would, the I, I'm going to say no. It says Tent needs you, not your money. Right. Right. This, this is a pretty stark contrast to app.net where the entire point of the service is we want to create a financially sustainable system where all the incentives are aligned. You know, a reaction to Twitter, which doesn't take money from its users, takes money from its uh, advertisers or wherever the heck they're getting it and sells its users. Tent says, we do not want your money. We want you. And that makes sense from the perspective of protocol. Like, they're not trying to start a company. Like, it's decentralized. They're not trying to start Facebook or Twitter. That would be a centralized service. What they want is for people to use their protocol in the same way that if you were trying to, if you were the creator of SMTP and POP and you weren't like the Internet Engineering Task Force or whatever. You know, if you're just some dude and you're like, boy, we could all send messages to each other electronically if we all just agreed on this protocol. You don't want someone to give you money or to sign up for your service. You want everyone to use your protocol, write clients, write servers, right? And so here are the, the, the things they offer, you know, in lieu of you giving money. How about starting your own tent server? Obviously, you know, become a member of this system. We've published a protocol. I think they've published some code, some server code, but you can just write your own, you know, follow the protocol and start your own tent server. Tell your friends about it. Uh, suggest a feature or a change. Like if you're into the protocol, look at the protocol and say, oh, you should have this feature or that feature. Build a client application that talks to the servers. Um, or ask ask people who use popular applications that you like, boy, I'd like for you to add tent support. Like ask Marco, hey, can you add tent support to Instapaper? Um, that's what they want you to do because they want this to be a protocol that everybody uses, a complete open decentralized protocol. 
And the way to get that to succeed is to get everybody to use it, not for a bunch of people to give this, these people money because they're not starting a service. They're not going to charge you money to use it. It's a protocol, not a service. And this is really weird for people to get their heads around. And it's kind of unprecedented in modern internet history. Uh, and in ancient internet history, this is the way everything worked. Everything was like an open protocol and you vote on it and, and have RFCs and you know debate about it. And then people go and implement it and... If you can get people to write implementations, your protocol succeeds. And if you couldn't get anyone to write implementations, it doesn't. Uh, but in the modern world, people are like, I'm going to start a company. I'm going to start Instagram and it's <laughs> going to be a company. And even though I don't take any money, like it is not an open protocol for photo sharing that we just want people to implement. It's service. I'm going to start Facebook and, and it may have an API and stuff like or Twitter it may have an API, but we control that API and we can turn that on and off anytime we want. You know, the final item I hear is where did tent come from? Tent began as a conversation between names that I'm going to mangle, and I'm sorry, Jonathan Rudenberg, Daniel Siders, Jesse Stewart, and Lucas. Oh, my goodness, Lucas. <laughs> W-O-J-C-I-E-C-H-O-W-S-K-I. I'm not even going to try. Yeah, don't even. Yeah. It was inspired by Hypertext, Xanadu, SMTP. Hey, there you go. And the World Wide Web and distributed peer-to-peer -peer services. All right. So I'm very interested in Tent from a nerd perspective. But I also have doubts from a nerd perspective. Uh, and in light of recent app.net activity, it seems like they have uh, their work cut out for them. So when I was making these notes, I think on past shows, I kept mentioning Tent and we never actually got to the topic. And one of the people involved, Daniel Siders, who I just read off in that previous thing, responded by email to a bunch of my questions. He's, he's one of the architects and core contributors to Tent. Uh, so here are what I think the biggest issues with Tent and other decentralized services when it comes to doing something like Twitter does. Uh, this is the section I had to trim out about orders of magnitude, so maybe we'll get back to it. But the the part that makes Twitter interesting and unique, well, there are a couple parts. One is the asymmetrical follow, uh, you know, friend thing where you can follow people and they don't have to follow you. That's different than like the symmetrical relationship and Facebook friends. Like that was clearly an important point in making Twitter attractive and successful, right? Second part is the really limited length that also made Twitter unique uh, and uh, contributed to its success. Uh, and the third part though and it's probably like equal parts these three things the third part though is that Twitter is real time and, and not hard real time like if anyone knows what real real time computing is it's not hard real time there you know it's but it's real time in, in quotes I guess that just means like lower latency than other similar protocols that you may be familiar with uh, so for example email has very different expectations uh, about latency if you send an email you don't expect the recipient to see it like within a handful of seconds. Maybe they will. And in many, many cases, they will see it. But if they don't see it for two minutes, you're not like, oh, my God, email is broken. If they don't see it for five minutes, you might get cranky. But you don't have the expectation for it to be like you hit send. Da, 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 da. Oh, they can see it. Right. Uh, and that is if they're looking at their email at all. Uh, instant message is real time. I send you an IM and I return. I have the expectation that you see those words on the screen. Not a minute from now. Like you see them pretty much now. Right. But instant message is not a broadcast medium. I'm sending to you, you're sending to me, and you can have group chats, but it's not like, you know, where you're sending up to thousands of people who are interested in what you have to say on IM, right? And the web, webs, uh, websites mostly are, require polling, where you have to, like, you know, pull from them and get the new information. Now, there are modern web protocols, like, you know, Ajax and Comet, where there are web sockets where you keep a connection open and keep going through that, but... For the most part, web is, you know, HTTP, stateless, uh, on-demand type of thing. Uh, and you have to be looking at it. So if I update my website, in theory, 
everyone should see that update instantaneously. But in practice, not everyone is looking at my website. So we'll take them all a while to look at it. Like right. Apple put up the, the Steve Jobs tribute video. Anyone could see that once it came up, plus or minus CDN caching. But the order in which people did see it was distributed over, you know, some bell curve of people hitting the site, right? Uh, so there's an article by Dan Weinman, not Dave Weiner, called... <laughs> that is, is a whole different a whole different person. It is. This, they're confusing. Apparently. Uh, is a federated Twitter even possible? This is in the show notes. Right. His, 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 oh, uh, by the way, post. we haven't said the show notes URL. Okay. This is my my fault. Sorry about that. 5by5.tv slash hypercritical slash 88. Go there and all of the links and everything that uh, John has created and saved and organized are awaiting you there. Yes, and uh, Dan Weinemann's website uh, host name is, is venomousporridge.com. So mm-hmm. thumbs up on that one, Dan. Good job getting venomous porridge. I can't yeah. believe that wasn't taken. I know. Poisonous porridge, obviously taken, but he got the venomous one. All right. So he lists a bunch of constraints that people have come to expect on what he calls their social timelines. Uh, and what I've got here are Daniel Sider's responses to these concerns. Uh, and some of my own, obviously. Immediacy. If a post has been made by someone fo- who I follow, I can see it in my timeline right away or close enough to right away that I don't even notice. Uh, so what Daniel says about immediacy is he says, we expect posts to show up and this is, you know, again, Tent, tent Daniel Siders from Tent.io and the Tent protocol. We expect posts to show up in other users' timelines quickly. Should be around four HTTP requests, each of which can be around 100 milliseconds and making the total trip under one second. All right. So uh, it, when someone makes a post, you should see it in, in less than a second, which is definitely within the realm of what we're considering real time. And when it comes to, you know, things like Twitter, uh, and he points out on a shared hosting provider, this is much shorter because there's never any extra syndication hubs or other apparatus to slow down the publishing process. Like if you and someone else are both on the same tent server, it doesn't have to, you know, go through an HTTP. It's all happening in the same data store. So that's much faster. Uh, And he says, because it's decentralized, periods of extreme load in larger ecosystems don't necessarily make communication sluggish for any specific group of users. This is the advantage of it being decentralized. And same thing with email. If Hotmail goes down or is super slow, you don't care unless you're receiving email from people at Hotmail or sending email to people at Hotmail. Uh, Obviously, if everyone had their own tent server, you wouldn't care if someone's server caught flames or was slow today unless you have a relationship with them. Uh, That's the most granular one. Uh, There's currently a service called tent.is made by the tent.io guys, which is a tent server that they run. Mostly it's kind of like a proof of concept type of thing, like here's what it would look like and stuff like that. Uh, And currently... Most of the people who are on Tent are on Tent.is. Uh, now, many of them are like, I should get my own host name, you know, right. johnsaracusa.com, yeah. and move my identity to johnsaracusa.com and run my own Tent server. And that's part of the protocol. Uh, but they haven't done it yet. But the, the, uh, most of the people who said this haven't done it. So there are a lot of people on Tent.is. I am Syracusa.tent.is. Everyone gets like your username.tent.is. Uh, if I'm communicating with another Tent.is user, that's much faster than sending a bunch of HTTP requests because they're there. And this is almost kind of like, it's not federated really because it's all the same protocol, but the granularity of these units, everyone doesn't have to run their own server because everybody won't run their own server. It's just like email. I'm When I send email to my wife on Gmail, I'm assuming it gets to her much faster than it would if she was on Hotmail. This doesn't have to go anywhere, really. It just travels within Google's data centers and their services. So in the same way that tons of people use Gmail, tons of people use Hotmail, tons of people use Yahoo, and a bunch of people run their own email servers, or they they contract out to a commercial company that runs the email service for them. Like, 
in that that same ratio of how many people are on each service and how it's distributed and how many people run their own service, those ratios are not baked into the protocol. People say, oh, no, Tent's never going to succeed because no one wants to run their own server. That's right. No one wants to run their own email server either. And nobody, no one does. Most people go to a service provider right. and they move between service providers or whatever. So I don't know what the breakdown, assuming Tent was successful, would be of people all piled onto one server. But the whole point is it doesn't matter if like 90% of the people are on, you know, tent.is. If tent.is, if the people who run tent.is, you know, if their service is slow or they start doing things that we don't like or running ads, we leave and go someplace else, right? You can't do that so much with Twitter because like, oh, I don't get to take my followers with me and they're not going to see, you know, if I move to app.net and I start posting all my stuff in app.net instead of Twitter, all the people who follow me on Twitter aren't going to see my updates. But if I leave Gmail and go to someplace else, I can still send email to anybody, you know? So it, it's, I think the backlash against decentralized services is like a misunderstanding of decentralized. It doesn't mean it's going to be a success, but it does mean that like for Tent to succeed, everyone doesn't have to run their own server. Like a lot of people said, I looked at Tent, but then I saw something about running my own server and I was like, oh, well, forget that. A, that's not going to succeed. B, that's not what I want to do. Well, that's true of email too. You don't want to run your own email server probably, but email succeeds and you don't have to do that if you don't want to. Uh, chronology. Posts always appear in order by time posted. I don't really understand this objection. You can read the Dan Weinman article, but it's like, from a programmer's perspective, you just sort them by time. Like, it, yeah, yeah, they come in. It's just like email. Sometimes you get an email, and there's two things about emails. There's date received and date sent. And you could sort by both of them in your client. If you sort by date received, yeah, an email someone sent later may come after one that, that someone sent. You know, they may come out, you know, out of order, quote unquote. But if you sort by date sent, it will insert one into the middle. And the chronology thing is like, I don't want... Uh, I don't want things to be all weird and out of order and come in strange places. And so uh, Dan Slatter says the same thing. It's like emails. Emails don't show up in your inbox out of order. There are two timestamps, the, you know, the sent and received, and you just sort. So I, I see this as a non-issue. Uh, this is the same thing in Twitter, by the way. Uh, sometimes tweets will come in, like replies or whatever, and get mixed into the timeline because my client made a request for my, my timeline stream and then made a later request for my replies, and it turns out one of those replies happened before, uh, you know, the thing in my timeline. Again, it's up to the client to sort them how it wants. Mono, monotonicity. I think I got that one right. Timelines grow only from the top. Older posts are never retroactively inserted. That's up to the client. It can, you can retroactively insert and preserve the time, the creation time, or you can just put them on the top and use receive time. Uh, this doesn't really change from centralized to decentralized. It, it, you know, Unless you believe that a centralized service will always give you a single stream of content, but they don't. Sometimes you make one request for your replies and one request for your stream, and you have to interleave them or not interleave them if you don't use Unified. Um, I think that was all of the... Uh, was that all? Concern, concerns <laughs> in, uh, in, in that particular article. But here, here's, here's one of my own that I got some feedback on. All right. So for popular people... Uh, Running, even if you run your own server, there are some challenges there, right? So for, to, to maintain this real-time thing, which I really believe is a key, key feature of Twitter, as important as having short messages in the asymmetrical follow thing, it has to be real-time. Because there's an expectation that if I'm sitting there watching a TV show and I make a snarky comment, everyone who follows me sees that snarky comment. Not five minutes from now, not, not even tomorrow. one minute from now. Yeah, right, right then. That's what makes Twitter different. I don't send out an email to everyone going, oh, there's a snarky comment about the show that I'm watching. Because like, they'll check their email later and they'll see it and it's like, what do you mean? But like Twitter is real time. That is 
I'm not gonna say it's the most important feature of Twitter, but it's it's got to be top three. Like it's one third of what makes Twitter important. So you you have to you can't just say oh well uh, it's good enough. It's within like a minute or two minutes. Like it's got to be I, what I'm using is under thirty seconds because I think if there's a thirty second lag, you don't notice it. But once you start going over that, uh, and, and this really changes the nature of Twitter. This is my sidebar about orders of magnitude and changing the nature of things. Maybe we'll say that for another show. Um, so if you have a hundred thousand followers and you say something. Uh, in the tent protocol, you now have to send 100,000 requests to all the people who follow you. Not requests, but you have to tell them. You have to send your thing to them, right? Uh, and if you want to do that in 30 seconds or less, you have to send uh, uh, 3,333 responses per second. And anyone who's done web development knows once you start getting to the thousands of responses per second, it's not hard, but like, you start talking like performance is then suddenly a concern. You can't just say, oh, any computer is fast enough to do that. It's no, I have no problem sending 3000 responses a second from any computer in the entire world. Depending on the nature of the responses, you may like if you're on shared hosting and there's latency and you don't have enough threads or processes available and how many sockets can you open at once, you're starting to get a little scary. Say you have 4 million followers, right? Now you're getting into semi-famous people and you want to, you want to say something, and then you want them all to see it in 30 seconds. Now you have to send 133,333 responses per second, or post requests per second. Now we're getting into some serious, like, all right, that's not one machine anymore. Uh, that's that's some serious hardware there. Now, Daniel Sider's response is that normal people, in quotes, on Twitter have about 27 followers as of 2011, and he references a Quora question about that that I put in the show notes. Uh, so for normal people, this is not a concern because you want to send out, you know, I send a message, I send it out to 27 people's tent servers, no problem. Like that's, you can do that within 30 seconds easily, right? Uh, and so those, you know, normal people will be fine. Uh, people like La Justin Bieber and Lady Gaga are going to need more serious hosting solution. <laughs> All right. Uh, and Daniel says that, that could absolutely be self-hosted in the sense that their websites are self-hosted, right? right? They have professional web presences and this would just be another component of their professional web presence. Because Lady Gaga's website, I'm sure, gets tons of hits, and they have, she has to pay money to run that. Uh, this would be the same deal. Uh, so users with a highly skewed asymmetrical follower ratios will, will have a, a low base need, but a huge burst need. Because when Lady Gaga says something, i got to tell 30 million people. Now, if you were designing that, like, you know, I have to send out 30 million bits of information in 30 seconds. That's not now we're talking not just serious money, but like know how is involved here. Right. And this is very different than the current system where Lady Gaga gets a free Twitter account and just posts and Twitter foots the entire bill for figuring out how to get Lady Gaga's things out to everybody. And it's kind of easier for Lady Gaga to do that on Twitter because it doesn't have to go anywhere. It, I mean, it does kind of but like it's inside the Twitter system. Now, here, here's the thing about this type of scaling thing. People think, oh, well, when Lady Gaga makes that post, it doesn't have to send it anywhere. It's just all inside Twitter. They can all see it. Just making that work on a centralized service, yeah. as we've seen for the years of the fail, well, that's, <laughs> that's not easy. That's not easy. Like, the in, what the inside of Twitter looked like would make the head of someone who hasn't done server-side web development spin. Because you're like, isn't it just like a bunch of servers? And they like <laughs> it's extremely complicated and very difficult to do. And they had lots of difficulty doing it. Like, they, they didn't have difficulty because they're dunces. They didn't have difficulty because it's a hard thing to do. And that's a centralized service, right? So decentralized is even harder. Um, uh, one of the things that Daniel says is that this is kind of like the ideal theoretical solution for cloud computing because you would want to be on some sort of cloud thing where when you're not tweeting, there's no big deal. But when you want to make a tweet, you would just use a tremendous number of virtual machines and do this giant scaling thing to send out your tweet. 
uh, and then it would scale back down. Uh, but that's that's still a very different model than currently. Oh, you know, they just make a Twitter account and they don't worry about the details. Right. Right. Follower discovery is another possible issue. When it's centralized, it's a lot easier to find people. Uh, if decentralized, you can still kind of find people the same way I kind of did on an app.net. How do I find people on there? You can just kind of guess what their username is going to be, or you look at someone who you follow on app.net and see who they follow and find, you know, oh, this friend is following these friends, and eventually you'll find all the people. But when it's decentralized, there's not a single place to search for people. Um, and speaking of search, how do I do something like uh, can I see a real-time feed, you know, like 30-second lags or so, of all of the messages on intent that contain a particular term across all users of the system? Like on Twitter, you can, you know, do, do a search and have like a, a real-time stream of people who are at mentioning you, people who mention your product name, you know, or a hashtag or whatever. Again, even that's hard to do in a centralized system. But in a decentralized, how do you do that? How do yeah. you even find all the people and ask them that you're interested in this? Uh, so what Daniel said is that Tent is basically like the web. You know, how do I do a search across the entire web? Well, Google spiders the whole web yeah. with a massive array of machines and finds itself. So Constantly, could, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Yeah, and like Google's been working for years to get that lower. Like, so if I make a web page right now and I type some string in there that I know is like, you know, totally made up, it's not a word and it's going to appear in one place. And then I just start doing Google searches and see how long will it take for Google to discover that I wrote that string on that web page? The answer currently is greater than 30 seconds. Maybe if you have an extremely popular site, Google is spidering you every 30 seconds. Uh, but most people don't. If I just put something on my blog, it's going to take Google a while to pick that up. Um, so Google, a solution like Google, can't do real-time search of, of new content on the web and couldn't do real-time search of tent. Uh, now, I'm not sure if people have noticed this, but at various times, and I think this is still true, Google has a real-time search for Twitter. If I tweet something, I can go to Google very quickly and do a search and find my tweet. How like, long? It, like, what do you mean very... I think it's like, you know... 10 minutes? Le less than 30 seconds, no, I think. No, really? Yeah. Wow. And the reason that, that, that I mean, it, I've never tested it, right? So, I, But I've just always been amazed that I, I Google or something. I'm like, I just made that tweet like earlier today. And there it is. Like, wow, that's fast. And the reason that works, my understanding of this is that Google is the recipient of the Twitter fire hose, as they call it. Google gets a sort of backdoor just for you real-time mm. feed of every single tweet made on Twitter. Mm. Twitter can provide that because every single tweet made to Twitter goes in goes through Twitter. So right. they know as they happen and they just they this fire hose is available to a couple of people. And so as tweets happen, they're instantly fed to Google. Google instantly indexes them and they show up, right? But Tent can't provide that feed to Google. Tent can't say, "Oh, here you go Google. Here is a fire hose feed of every single thing it's, it's like saying, can you do that for email? Can you send me a feed of every single email sent by every person as they send it in the entire world? Of course you can. Like that, never, privacy concerns aside, like that's just not possible. You can't, you can't give Google a real-time feed of every email. Google can see every email sent through Gmail, but they can't see what's sent through Hotmail or AOL Mail or right. any of those services or self-hosted things. And it's the same thing with Tent. There is no way to get a unified real-time feed because it's a decentralized service. Uh, so you're back to the problem of like, how do you do real-time search? Well, you'd have to either crawl the whole system or monitor the whole system. And the way you could do the monitor the whole system is you could, you know, first you discover every single tent server that's out there. Uh, and then you follow the status updates of each one. Obviously, you can't see their private ones, right? You know, I don't know if Twitter sends the private ones to Google. I probably don't want to know. Uh, but you would become a follower of every single tent user. And what that would mean is that every time a, a tent user makes a post, 
it would say, oh, this Google bot thing is following me. Uh, I need to send this update to them as well. And then Google would have every single tent update made in the entire world also sent to it. So then Google becomes the the centralized server. Well, they follow everybody, right? right? But what that that doesn't mean a single stream like the Firehose. That means like so, so. How many people do you think are tweeting right now? Like one, two, three. How many tweets just happened? Probably like a million. Yeah, a million. Well, like if they're many, listening to this many, show, it's a million. Many, many millions, right? <laughs> what that would mean if you were Google is what they see is just a million new entries come through the stream they're listening on. In, in the tenth situation, they see a million new socket connections, each of which tells them information about one tweet. I mean, if anyone can handle that type of scale, it's Google. So I'm not saying it's impossible to do real-time search, but it's a very different solution than, than dealing with the fire hose. Uh, and it does require on kind of the good graces of all the tent services that they might say, you know what, I'm, you're not allowed to follow me, Google, like you block Google. And that would make it so your stuff isn't indexed, which I think is actually a feature of the system because if you don't want your tweets indexed by Google, I guess you can do protected updates and stuff, but really you're at the whim of Twitter Incorporated. Like you don't control that. Uh, but if you ran your own uh, tent server or you were on a tent server owned by somebody who agreed with your philosophy, you could block them, right? Yeah. So the short answer to the search is basically you need a search engine. Uh, and it would not be easy to build, but it seems like it is possible. Um, what's the next one here? Following every tent user. Yeah, the, the, the bottom line from Daniel is that... Uh, Distributed definitely makes search harder than centralized, no doubt about it. Uh, but I, I have been convinced that it actually is possible if the service became popular. On oh, the final bit is streaming. Uh, because the tent thing is like you make a post and then it sends HTTP post requests using this protocol to all the people who are following you, right? Uh, but a streaming protocol is where you open a socket and you're just like listening. And anytime a new stuff comes, you see it immediately. You don't. It's not polling. You're not saying, is there new content? Is there new content? And it's not push like... Uh, I have a server that's sitting there and then as soon as someone tweets, they push it to me, I respond to it and then I, I show it in my data stores and stuff like that. So he says streaming is coming soon. That poses all sorts of other problems because if you have 30 million followers, if they're all if they're all streaming to you, that means you have 30 million open sockets. Again, anyone who's done any server-side development, those 30 million open sockets is not probably a tenable solution or really not a situation you probably want to be in. And it certainly means that you're not serving this from a single machine. Like there are all sorts of things, bad things that happen when you have, you know, kernel resources are limited uh, and connections break and have to be remade. And so uh, streaming is something that you don't necessarily have to support. Uh, I was trying to get more details on this, but it's like, if you don't support streaming, you're still part of the tent ecosystem. But if you would like to support streaming, you can. Uh, this is all speculative because this the streaming protocol isn't out yet, but it shows that they can't, they, they do plan to be able to do streaming. And I think in the common case, it will work where you'll be able to get up, you know, you, you follow hundred people, fine, have hundred open sockets and see their stuff in real time. So you don't have to pull, you don't have to bring up your HTTP connection, tear it down, bring it up, tear it down. Right. Um, uh, then you also mentioned that tent, uh, tent D, their current daemon implements exponential back off for retries in the event that a follower server is unavailable, just like email. So like if you can't send an email and it's not responding, it'll just keep trying. So if your tent server is down, you don't miss your updates from, from someone else. It really does seem like this is a neat system, but maybe this is just something that people will use internally, like you were kind of saying. I don't know. I, I can't tell what they're what the success is going to be. So here's, yeah. a, here's a note from uh, Paul Haddad uh, of TapBots fame. I, I would say what his role is at TapBots, but I don't know. 
He's the Tapbots guy. Maybe he writes all their applications himself with a stick in the dirt, or maybe he's just the CEO of the company. I don't know. But anyway, Paul Haddad of Tapbots fame says he checked out the 10 to API and it's listed as version 0.1 and he agrees with that. <laughs> you know, there's, there's no favoriting, there's no reposts. Uh, uh, the post dimensions and direct messages are all intermingled in a single stream, which I actually kind of like. But uh, so this is their protocol and their, you couldn't call it their service. So their protocol is n- not quite as mature as app.net. App.net is ahead of them. The question is, does it matter? They say they have an awesome protocol and we think it's good and we like the idea of decentralized. How do they get traction? Because app.net has a plan, like the Cylons, right? Not only they really have a plan. Charge people money for the service. Use that money to pay to make the service good for the people who are paying you money and give a little bit of it to the client developers. That's it. Like That may not be a business model that ever gets them to be big and massive and famous, but it's a business model. Right, like you can. It's very easy to understand. Uh, but App.net is not decentralized. So what is Tense thing? They they don't want your money. Uh, they don't necessarily want like the entire world to sign up on Tense.is. I think what they'd like to see is like what happened with email. You know, Hotmail comes along and they make a web-based email and it talks the email protocols. Uh, and then Google decides to make one, and some people join Hotmail and some people join Google and Yahoo has a web like. And all those things don't make the people who invented POP and SMTP famous or rich or anything like that. But it does make a system with a decentralized protocol that we all participate in that has all the advantages of a decentralized system, right? And I think that's their success scenario is they don't expect to get, I guess, probably rich or famous off of this. It's not a, a money grab. It's, they're not trying to be the next Facebook. They're not even trying to be the next app.net. They want there to exist a decentralized protocol for these type of things. Um, and I'm sure people are going to send feedback like, what about status.net and diaspora and all these other things that have existed before? Yes, there have been several other attempts at this. And I have to confess that I have not paid that much attention to the previous ones. I don't know if that's because the, you know, perfect storm of Twitter crankiness that's happening lately has not, you know, that's why we haven't paid attention because we were all loving Twitter. And it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is doing some open source thing, but I'm not paying attention. And now suddenly when app.net comes along and we're all cranky about Twitter, we do pay attention and we do pay attention to Tent. Uh, I don't know how Tent compares to Status.net or Diaspora or any of the other things that have been out there. Uh, all I know is that Tent is the one I'm currently paying attention to because of just the context that I'm in. So it's not not a slight on any of those other services. But uh, I I think that Tent has many challenges ahead of it related to how do you make a decentralized service work, decentralized service like Twitter work. I believe it is possible, but it's a very different type of situation than than, than a centralized service. Very very different. Uh, like presumably an app.net, say Lady Gaga comes to app.net. App.net has to have its business model such that for the fees of all the subscribers add up to enough money to host Lady Gaga, right? Like that's, that's, they have to balance their business that way. They have to say our income has to equal the amount that we have to expend. Uh, So if they have 20 million users, each paying $30 a month, presumably they'll, or $30 a year, $36 a year, presumably they will have enough money to, put out a bunch of servers so that Lady Gaga can also pay $36 a year and successfully talk to the, you know, millions of users who are on app.net, right? Uh, But in the tent.io thing, like Lady Gaga, like her website would be responsible for paying for her own server or paying someone who's like, we host celebrities on our tent server and we have massive volume and come here. You know what I mean? Like I can envision a world where tent is successful and exists everywhere, but I don't know how you get from there to here and app.net 
I also see challenges ahead for them, but it seems a little bit more clear to me. Uh, but I think this these two guys doing this in this space is very interesting. Two very different approaches, both of which I think are getting some traction now. Like the fact that uh, that Paul Haddad was looking at uh, tent, you know, makes like that's a good sign that like. All right, so we made this thing for app.net, which is like a port of our extremely popular Twitter client. Could we do the same thing for tent.io? And it seems like he's saying, not quite yet, kind of wait and see. But they could also have their own netbot moment, right? Where suddenly people start paying attention to tent. Um, and I think finally wrapping up here, the meta problem is, do I want to check Twitter and app.net and tent.io? Like, don't I want to just concentrate on one? We all just want a winner, right? Uh Currently, I am checking three places. And let me tell you, it's not fun, right? I didn't, I didn't leave Twitter for app.net. I'm not leaving app.net for tent.io. I'm on all those places at the same time. Uh, and app.net suddenly cranked up in volume. So now it's like almost as, as active as Twitter during some periods. <laughs> if tent.io also cranks up that level of activity, yeah. I'm, I'm not going to be happy. Yeah, you're screwed. Like, we want something to win here. Kind of like we, we would all be, I think we would all just be happy with Twitter if they didn't do things that we didn't like, you know, they made the nerds angry. And so the nerds are doing this other stuff. And now the nerds are just torturing themselves by getting involved. And, and now I feel like Merlin with this. What was this whole thing of like, you know, I don't want to, I don't want another service. I don't want to look at another thing. You guys just sort it out and tell me how it, how it turns out. Despite the fact that he is on app.net, but has never made any posts. I don't know if he's intent. I'm going to, I'm going to say no. Uh, is, is it an exciting time? May you live in interesting times, as they say. I think this is an interesting time if you're interested in real-time social networking protocols and services. Uh, and I'm sure we will revisit these topics as these companies either implode or become wildly successful. I think I think I'm I'm all out. What do you think? Did I miss this anything? This was pretty. This was a good rant for you. Not really a rant. It's like well, I mean, you've been saving up for this. It's confusing and interesting. And by the way, both of the people, the people involved in Tent and the people involved in AppNet, because I've like even just mentioned them or been talking about it, they're trying to like, you know, they're emailing me and saying, hey, if you're going to talk about this stuff, like, let's, you know, let's talk. Uh, I'm here to answer any questions you have. Like, they're doing the evangelization to say, we want to get the word out. We want our services to be represented fairly. If you have any questions about it, like, they're doing all the right things. So the fact that they're talking to me shows that, you know, <laughs> they're, Maybe it's because they're not talking to uh, to the New York Times and, and uh, Wall Street Journal, or maybe it's because they know that if you want to start with the nerds, maybe start with the nerd podcasts. But uh, I appreciate their time and uh, the feedback they've given, and they have, especially the tent guys, have helped clarify many doubts and questions I had about their service. And I think I'm kind of on the same page with all of them. Like I believe all of their stories. I believe there is a success scenario for all of them, but maybe not all at the same time. Like like maybe. Maybe one success kind of depends on the other one not quite being successful. Or maybe maybe there's some sort of detente they can come to. Like, what about a client that does app.net and tent.io at the same time? That can exist because neither of their terms of services are evil like Twitter. So you can't make a client that combines tweets with app.net posts with tent posts. Twitter terms of service forbid it. So fine. Twitter took its ball and went home. Whatever. Right? But you can make one that combines the other services. So what if app.net becomes another tent server. Uh, I put a, a link in the show notes from Dalton, a blog post that uh, lists all the open protocols that, that, that app.net has already committed to supporting. They're going to support, I don't even know what these are, I'll just read them. Activity Street, 
dot ms. It's like streams with a dot before the M. Adam and JSON feeds, RSS feeds, PubSub Hub, uh, exposing user identities with WebFinger. Uh, what else do we have? Commitment to coordinate between internal and external parties to create and support open source lightweight clients as in as many flavors as we can, a la Stripe. I don't even know what that means. I know what Stripe is, though. Uh, commit to enabling and supporting users in building inbound and outbound syndication to and from app.net. So they're already committed to be open, like they're not a walled garden. They want to interoperate. But the question is, do we ever come up with a way where they, you know, is it like AOL mail? Like AOL mail was a thing. And then it's like, well, AOL mail is going to be internet mail. And we have a gateway to the internet. And then eventually it's just like, okay, look, we're just all email, right? And your internal details go away. Maybe that's a success scenario. I when I think about these two services or two ideas competing, uh, I tend to think that the winning strategy for app.net is to do the Apple thing. And the Apple thing is to pretend that tent doesn't exist and plow forward as fast as you can, making your service awesome and not to do the open source, which is everybody stop everything. Let's figure out a way that app.net and tent.io can work together to make a good protocol for the good of everyone that will slow you down. And, you know, it sounds evil. Like, this is why people think Apple is evil. Because Apple would not do that. Apple wouldn't say, whoa, we need to stop because someone else is doing something similar. Google, let's work together so we can make a single operating system that's a combination of Android and iOS. No, that's not what, that's not what Apple does. <laughs> say, you know what? Bye-bye. We're going ahead as fast as we can. Try and catch us, Google. Uh, and, you know, that's... So, since app.net is a little bit ahead, I would imagine the 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 Steve Jobs, in honor of Steve Jobs' death, the Steve Jobs strategy for app.net, he would say... Uh, Keep making your product and service better as fast as you possibly can. Do not waste any time trying to interoperate with Tent. But the nerd answer is, oh God, guys, come on. Let's do the let's do the good thing for everybody and let's get this together and figure out what we're doing. And just we're not we nerds are few, relatively, right? Let us not further fragment ourselves. Let us try to agree on a single standard and move forward. Uh, and my counterexample of that would be the Linux standards base or any other efforts to try to get all the people in the Linux community to move together in unison. Those have not worked and have only made delayed innovation in the Linux space, I think, especially in you know the consumer Linux space. I feel the same way about this. So I'm, I'm hesitant to give advice to any of them because the device, advice that will be most successful is the worst for me as a user and is also slightly evil. But that seems like the current winning strategy. Uh, and in the meantime, I, I'm checking status updates in three places. All right. I think now I'm really done. I feel good. I feel tired. I feel sick. <laughs> Sorry. Not because of these topics, because I have a cold. <laughs> okay. So speaking of uh, places to follow people, you are on Twitter as Syracusa, S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A. You're also on alpha.app.net, Syracusa. I'm Dan Benjamin on Twitter, Dan on Alpha. And, uh, and that's it. Oh, don't forget Syracusa.tent.is. I am on Tent. <clears throat> uh-uh. um, by the way, Tent has a free and paid thing. Tent.is. Not the protocol, but the service Tent.is can give you an account for free and you can also pay some amount of money for it. Right. And again, that doesn't mean that Tent charges you money. That means it's like Gmail either charges you money or you don't. It doesn't mean email charges you money. Anyway, I'm on Tent at Syracusa.tent.is. And if I move to a new Tent URL, you won't have to update it manually because in theory, uh, they'll all talk to each other and figure it out. Yeah. And uh, the show notes for this episode, 5x5.tv slash hypercritical slash 88. Thanks very much to our sponsors who make this show possible. If you would like to hear more episodes of the show, check out our sponsors. And uh, you can also leave a review or a rating 
for us in iTunes. Just go to iTunes, search for Hypercritical. Do your thing. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Have a good one, John. Hope you feel better. Thanks. Thanks.